You're listening to Cinepunked. This is a comedy of madness. Hello, I'm your host, Robert J.E. Simpson, and this very special show features our unscripted conversation, A Comedy of Madness, recorded in front of a live audience. Devised as a touring production by myself and comedy historian Robert Ross, the show seeks to explore the perceived fine line between comedy genius and insanity. It is both a celebration of comedy heroes and a personal interrogation of male mental health. We draw on the lives of the great comics and our own experiences and those of our guest, actor and comedian Tony Slattery. To quote the publicity blurb, The heritage of comedy is a troubled one, littered with the shells of those whose comedy genius is inextricably linked with mental health struggles. From Spike Milligan to Marty Feldman, Tony Hancock to Stephen Fry, Kenneth Williams to Robin Williams, their comedy pushed boundaries while they struggled in their private life. From sectioning to suicide, debasement to depression, this show explores the genius and instability of some of our comedy legends, of changing attitudes to mental health language and treatment, and the challenges of owning conditions of the mind in the public gaze. This was the first of two live shows recorded in Belfast with Tony last November and interested parties should check out the previous podcast for a recording of the interview show I did with him. Fiendish of us to mix up the order, isn't it? The show makes use of a number of clips to stimulate and illustrate the conversation and these have been left in more or less as is and if you're not familiar with the performers under discussion we hope it prompts you to investigate their work further and please do support any official releases of the material. This is an epic show, brace yourselves, it's nearly two and a half hours long. Maybe it's the sort of show that you need to sit down over two settings. Uh, We've elected to include the event in its entirety. Listeners should be aware that there are topics and conversation of a frank and sensitive nature, and the show does include discussion of mental illness, trauma, depression, self-harm, substance abuse, and suicide. We open with a clip from the 1956 short film The Case of the Muckanese Battlehorn, starring Peter Sellers and Spike Milligan. Look, sir! An impression of a heel! Very clever, Brown, but we haven't time for your impressions now. Thank you, sir. I say, are you there? Are you the body? No, are you? Oh, no. I'm Superintendent Quilt of Scotland Yard. Delighted to meet you. My name's Nodule. I'm the curator here. How do you do? <laughs> How do you do? Excuse my glove, won't you? Certainly, of course. <laughs> Hello. Hello, I thought we'd just met. What have we got over here? What's all this about, eh? There. Yeah, we had a robbery last night. A robbery? Anything stolen? Have a look. Metropolitan Museum, Machinese Battlehorn, 9th century, copper inlaid with rubies and emeralds. <laughs> You've been swindled, old man. What? Yes, this is an ordinary house brick. I know, the Machinese Battlehorn has been stolen. What? <laughs> I must warn you that anything you say will be taken down and used in evidence against you. Don Brown? Yes, sir. Make an edible then. Right, sir. I'm a starter. 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 i am a this priceless Grecian 
Marty, do us a favour, would you? Would you stick on the uh, a show called Fred clip, please? Thanks very much. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, please uh, join me uh, in a round of applause on the stage for uh, uh, our special guests. It's uh, me, Robert Simpson, talking very strangely for a change. Uh, my special guests, uh, Mr. Robert Ross, comedy historian, and uh, the one and only legendary Mr. Tony Slattery. Thank you. Why are you talking in that strange voice, Robert? I Hello, nice to see you. Oh, my God. This it's packed tonight, folks. Look at it. it it's, Please, it's, it's take a pew. It's all this pressure of doing a I'm show about comedy. I'm going to sit down first. Kind of, oh, God, this is very low. This oh. oh. <laughs> no, I mean... We'll be here till Christmas, so lock the doors, folks. Get the brandy out. Go on, then. I'll just turn my machine off. Oh, OK, fine. Do you talk about those clips first? Yes, please. Because, um, obviously, that was uh, a couple of rare examples of filmed goon show comedy... Uh, the first one was a, a short film called The Case of the Muckinese Battle Horn with uh, Spike Milligan and Peter Sellers and Dick Henry, of course. And the, uh, the classic dustbin dance was from a TV show called A Show Called Fred from 1957. Which is wonderfully adorable and bizarre and sadly not extant in the archives in the way it should no, be. No, no, there's only a few bits and pieces. And both of those things have got a connection with Monty Python. All the Monty Python guys, the six Monty Python guys, um, said that Spike Milligan had gone through the insanity, so they didn't have to. Um, and uh, the case of the Muckley's Battlehorn, which was made in 1956, uh, when Monty Python and uh, the Holy Grail was released in cinemas in 1974, uh, the Pythons picked that short as the, uh, the feature that went with the feature film. It was like the, the B picture. Um, and a show called Fred, when all the Pythons were in their sort of early teens, was a thing they, they all watched religiously. Well, the five English Pythons certainly did. So, yeah. I feel I should probably explain what we're doing here tonight. Please do. Because I did not do that. I and mean, we just bombarded you with clips and uh, prattling on. Um, so, uh, this is a, a comedy of madness. This is an evening dedicated to our comedy heroes uh, and uh, men's mental health and mental health awareness. I think that's actually what we sort of had billed this as. Um, so, this we're also recording this uh, for a podcast, and there'll be a chance for you guys to, to interact and ask questions and stuff later on. And uh, you may also notice we have a film crew in the building, so please put on your best smiles and brush your hair nicely, well, please. you say crew. Well, there's, there's, there's some of them. I mean, how many people? Do, more than one is a crew. One. There's two. There's two. There's two. The wonderful Claire and Kate, who are oh. doing a documentary about my dear friend here, Mr. Tony Slattery, which will be coming to a TV screen near you uh, sometime early next year, I think. But mm. so, yeah. Yeah. So yes, or so may never be shown. It will be shown. Shelved forever. <laughs> um, so yes, so we're doing these two nights. Uh, we're in tonight to talk about this more comedy and our heroes more generally. And then tomorrow night, if you haven't already got tickets, please come back. Uh, me and uh, Mr. Slattery will be on stage. And we're going to chat about Tony's life and career and all kinds of fun mm. things. Short show. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's some fun in there. Okay. I promise. Uh, so yes, yeah, so come back tomorrow night. That's 8 o'clock tomorrow oh, night. Yeah. Um, so for now, we're going to kind of concentrate on, on this.
Yeah. So where do you want to go from this? Should we talk about well, Milligan and Sellers then, I suppose? I think so. Sense. I mean, for me, that was sort of... I'm going to take my jacket off. You, you talk about them for a second while no, I strip. Of course, OK. Um, well, um, I, I think certainly uh, they were two of my massive um, comedy heroes, obviously before my time, but my dad was a huge Goon Show fan. Um, and I was weaned on um, reel-to-reel tapes he recorded illegally, thanks, Dad, um, off the BBC uh, repeats of the Goon Show. Um, and I was weaned on sort of radio comedy, uh, Hancock's Half Hour, uh, The Navy Lark, Round the Horn, but his all-time favourite was The Goon Show. Um, so I, I just thought this was just surreal genius, and it was a, a whole sort of half-hour you know, universe that I could just wallow in and just lose myself in these crazy voices and this wonderful sort of uh, satirical, anti-authority comedy. I loved it. Um, sorry. Um, so, uh, how, old, how did you record them illegally if he was your dad? Well, my, no, over no, I didn't. My dad recorded them illegally. Yes, that's what I meant. So but if he was 60, and so that makes you... So, was there a VHS or... No, this is the audio. So he would. Oh, they, so so they would they would broadcast sorry, them on sorry. on Sunday afternoons. Sorry. It was right. like a Sunday afternoon Goon Show classic. And we're talking. This is the seventies. Wow. So he had an old um, reel-to-reel recording machine, which he he cleverly hooked up to to his wireless and would record them. I've still got them in my loft, actually, these old um, tapes that he did. Um, even though I've got them all on CD now, I have my dad's original recordings because it's that it's the sound is is very provocative and evocative uh, of, of my youth. This is, this is just your nostalgia oh, kind of uh, yeah. creeping through again as you, as you kind of indulge in antique formats. I've, I've used nostalgia for my entire career, Robert, you know this. It's, it's done all um, right. Um, it's done okay. I mean, I think uh, Milligan was the first person I think I ever remember reading who made me laugh out loud. And I think that was my introduction. My mother had a, a couple of books that were bound. It was, one in particular was uh, one of the McGonagall books. Mm-hmm. And it was bound with uh, one of Harry Seacombe's memoirs, strangely enough. And the Milligan book just made me laugh. But at the same time, my father also brought us up on a diet of Pink Panther movies. He, he adored oh. Peter Sellers. Yeah. And that was kind of fed in. And at some stage, I, I think we were on a family holiday. And in one of those service stations that we pulled over going through England, I picked up a cassette tape of uh, the Goon Show songs. And I just remember that being played endlessly for the rest of that holiday and loving all the voices and the songs and everything else. And from that, I went to explore more of what they did. Uh, that and I have vague memories of Spike Milligan reading kids' stories on the TV. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, a bit like uh, my, my obsession with, with Tony's work as, as a sort of teenager, um, my two big heroes when I was about sort of 15, 16, 17, 18 uh, were Tony and, and Rick Mayall, and I would watch and listen to anything they, they did uh, my absolute heroes as, a, as, a, as a, my formative years. As a, as a small kid, as I say, uh, it was Milligan and, and Hancock. Mm. And I think even, and, and, and looking into Hancock's career and looking into Milligan's career, their, their heritage seemed to inform what they'd done. Um, Hancock's work has that sort of misty cloud over it because you know it's going to end in suicide in 1968 at the age of 44. Mm. And Milligan's comedy has has before he became famous had survived the war and and took that you know what he'd seen during the conflict and and what he survived and seen his friends just blown to bits and and it's almost like you know life is so fragile but if it's so fragile then you can make fun of it and i think that that informed his comedy so much and as a young kid i i sort of figured that out i think and it really touched me quite deeply 
Um, so so I, I always saw the sort of the humanity in comedy somehow. Ooh, I, I know. We should have ended there, shouldn't we? That was, <laughs> that was a good out there. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Uh, um, this is a fun evening. <laughs> <laughs> no, but no, what you just said. That, oh gosh, does he rather? Move I mean, you 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 admire of, of, of uh, Peter Sellers and, and oh, Spike. Oh, good lord, you? yes. And uh, what you touch? Uh, I think we have spoken about this before. Rick Mail happens to be one of my heroes as well, and I was lucky enough to. Uh, work with him and he gave me great advice on the set of um, Carry On Columbus. I don't know whether anyone has seen that film. H hands, hands up who has? Anyone in the audience? Three, one, Be, two, be proud, hands up high. <laughs> one, of, one, of my, one of my favourites, oh, certainly. No, it was great and uh, I, I, I did, sorry, I, didn't, I know this is a, okay, no, because just because you mentioned uh, Rick and I went into it and um, I, I was playing, I don't know, Smelly Messenger number three uh, or something like that. And I had a couple of lines and it was offered to many people before I took it because I just took anything really. But I was so proud to be part of it. And I was actually quite nervous uh, doing it because, because of the part of British comedy history and everything and uh, I did it and I think on, on the first take because they only do two takes because they're still cheap aren't they <laughs> and uh, Rick said no but in a really nice way no Tony go on do it you have to and my line was something like I've just come hot foot from Lisbon and then um Cut away of uh, smoke coming out of the shoes smoke coming yeah. out of my shoe I haven't had that off in years cut to Rick I'm not surprised. And so the second take, which is all they could afford, said, and Rick came up to me and said, Tony, Tony, look, just go for it. Just go for it. Because I was quite shy. And it was the best piece of advice. And what a, what a sad loss. Why do, why do all the people, good people, uh, go? And uh, so you just made me quite uh, nostalgic about the loss of Rick. Well, one of my absolute heroes, yeah. And, and as you say, died far too young. Like a lot of these guys, we were looking at this, at this uh, banner before we started the show. And, um, you know, most of them, apart from Spike, who actually made it over 80, um, the rest didn't make it past retirement age in 65 terms. And, you know, obviously... A lot, a lot of them were a lot younger than that. Hancock was 44, as I mentioned, and 44. Peter Sellers was only 54, and Marty was 48, and you know, Robin 63, and uh, yeah, and Kenneth was 62. Yeah, it's quite sad. So it is sad, I know, but you know, but but going back to to to, to Sellers, <clears throat> I think his his comedy performances. I, mean, I think of all the, the the film stars that were comedians. You look at someone like Frankie Howard. Pretty much played Frankie Howard brilliantly. No one can do Frank like Frankie Howard. Uh, and Spike Milligan didn't really do a lot. Don't start doing Frank. No, we, we, did, we did. I'm sorry, <laughs> we had a conversation <laughs> once. And uh, because Rob uh, is widely regarded, uh, quite rightly, as uh, a premier, uh, um, a comedy historian, and uh, we once were in a conversation and we just, not self indulgently, we couldn't help it. I think. Because I know a thing or two from Sharpened about psychiatry, we just lapsed into a continual ping pong ball of Frankie Howard. No, we didn't. But it came on. Sorry, I hope you don't mind if I. Um, I was talking about the death of someone close to me, and um, it was important that it was moving to people, and I was moved, but inadvertently. 
Rob, at the end of this description of someone's slow death, you inadvertently went, <laughs> and I went, oh, no. And it was, so for the next 10 minutes, yes, oh. and we were talking about someone who died from cancer. No. And we, we and did lose it for a good 10 yes, minutes. Yeah, we but, really um, did. It was, sorry. But no, but, but, having, but, but it's true, but, 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 the, but there's a very fine line between, between loss and, and comedy. I think, you know, I do another uh, a solo show called Forgotten Heels of Comedy, and there's a, a comedian who started the whole project, uh, a 1930s um, variety comedian called Ronald Franco, um, who only turned to comedy because he lost his brother in the Great War um, and would write these satirical anti-establishment songs. And, you know, talking about the goons, you know, the fledgling goon, Michael Benteen, um, they, all, they all served in some sort of capacity during the Second World War. And Michael Benteen was part of the troop that liberated Belson concentration camp, you know, and, and to, to combat what he'd seen, the harrowing images he'd seen that he could never forget, he turned to complete surrealism comedy to try and, you know, sponge those out of his head. Does that also fit in with where Michael Benteen get into his interest in the supernatural and, and sort of, you know, sure. the, the other world as well? Absolutely, yes. But he also lost a child very young too. I think, you know, I think grief and, 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 and loss of a relationship or loss of a person by death um, can really inform comedy because, you know, this is why there's whole sort of like a, a, a sub-genre of, of, of comedy horror because, you know, uh, if, you, if you either laugh or cry at a situation, I think the British particularly mm. laugh at it. You know, it's, it's a very fine line between, between tears and laughter. You know, you cry with laughter, right? That's it. Well, we, we've kind of pitched this in a, in a way of kind of looking at that, that big issue where people almost assume that comics are tragic figures, that they are hiding some kind of deeper grief, and they're not the happiest of people. Traditionally. Some are. And we, we, um, we, we haven't have chosen a bunch of, of no, comics that we know are not, yeah. not necessarily happy people. Yeah. Um, but is there an element of that that, that is true, that, that comedy is the way to handle... Uh, <laughs> do people turn to comedy? Do, 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 do successful comics, or do they have to be unhappy people? I mean, that's the question. Did you, did you that find that ask. performing comedy helped your mental anxiety at all or not? I think comedy caused it. <laughs> Oh. No, uh, no, no, I, th I think what you said, Robert, is uh, I know it's a received idea and it's a cliche. Oh, well, aren't comedians tragedians underneath and they uh, cope with the quotidian misery of daily life uh, by trying to be funny and trying to be likable? And I think there is an element of truth in that. There's no question. But, I mean, these, these great people who are, who are on, on the screen... They did have a, a dark side. And all, all the, I would not say all, you, you pointed out, uh, many of them do. I think there's no question about that. And whether that is subjugating or sublimating uh, private uh, misery, that's all kind of up to, uh, up for debates. But uh, I, I really think there's, uh, there are many grains of truth in that. It's the same thing, I think the same psychological impulse that makes us laugh. At funerals, you mentioned bereavement and loss. Why do people laugh at funerals? Is, is it nervous laughter? Is it uh, one in the eye for death saying, I'm still alive, I can laugh. That's why a lot of eulogies uh, at funerals 
and I've done a few myself, um, provoke laughter. And you want it to be a celebration of a person's life as opposed to a fucking dirge. Because otherwise you just get lower and lower and lower, like people are going into the ground or being sent in to be burned. And, um, yeah, so I think that's it. Or, uh, as Joe Orton, because we were talking about Joe Orton earlier, <clears throat> He's, he said, <laughs> in typical Orton-esque way, why lots of people desire sexual activity after funerals. And it's an outrageous thing to say and disrespectful. But then he said, it's because it's one in the eye for death. It's saying, I'm alive, I'm going to prove it. Mm. And, and comedy does, as you say, diffuse those really, you know, uh, tragic situations. I remember my mum in 2003 uh, lost her, her dad. And also my dad died the same year. So um, my dad died in August 2003. And my, pater my maternal grandfather died in February 2003. And my dad was dying of cancer. And he insisted on going to the funeral of my grandfather. And he stood by the side of the, uh, the open grave... And I, in my, my impish way, turned to him and said, there's not much point you going home, is there, Dad, really? And he laughed and laughed and laughed. Um, because, you know, that was it. I should have been there, and then I could have gone, exactly. and you could have gone, mm, no, no, stop it. Okay, right. you, you can referee this, Rob. Okay. I've, I've seen this routine more than once. No, exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I suppose we have to laugh in order to get an emotional release. I mean, that's why we do it. And as you rightly say, Tony, I mean, otherwise you're, you're constantly down there. And actually, there's, there's no kind of real satisfaction from that, but there's something about a laugh that, that kind of releases the endorphins, that gives us a euphoria. Um, and you do feel it when you've had a really good laugh, so like, like watching the, the, bus, the dustbin dance. Yeah. There is something absolutely glorious about that. If you're feeling a bit, if you're feeling down, yes, you know, exactly, just step into yeah. the dustbin and dance. And, I, I, you know, I, I still feel absolutely... But it's, but it's a sort of therapy. It, it makes you in a happy place. If I'm not feeling good, I stick on a carry-on or I stick on a Hancock's half hour or something and it makes me feel happy. Mm. Yeah. It makes, puts me in a, in a better place. It makes you feel better. It's, it's, and I think we've had this conversation before, Tony, about you know, um, addiction and whatever, be it alcohol or be it drugs. You say the one that beats it is the applause and laughter of an audience, isn't it? Yes, I think so. Um, the, uh, as you said, Robert, um, the release of... Uh, endorphins and serotonin and noradrenaline, the things I can just about spell, are um, proven to yeah. be always my partner who's in the audience. Uh, hello, Mark. <laughs> um, calls them dolphins. Release your <laughs> dolphins, Tony. And which always makes, makes, when I say that, it makes people think, oh, what a depraved life you live. Why are you keeping this endangered species? But it is. Oh, and I, I suddenly thought, uh, uh, oh, so just before we came on, uh, that song, pick yourself up, dust yourself down, and start taking more Prozac and blame <laughs> someone else. The drugs don't work, do they? <laughs> they do sometimes. Anyway, that's, another, that, that's another conversation. That's later on in the, yeah, yeah, in the chat. Uh, I mean, so that, that's just going to bring back to, to Spike and, and to Sellers in particular. Yeah. Um, there, there's a story that I, I, I really wanted to show, and I forgot to, to get the clip for this. You've probably heard the one um, where uh, it's, it's Peter Sellers has the car. And there's a, there's a squeak in the back of the car and he calls Spike Milligan up on the phone uh, and asks Spike to come round. And Spike comes round to the house and says, there's, there's a squeak in the car and he puts him in the boot of the car. 
and gives him a piece of chalk and says, okay, when you hear the squeak, can you just put an X where you think that the squeak is? And there is something about that that, that is both insanely brilliant and surreal and very goonish, yeah. but also something there that, that's slightly not normal and is slightly unhinged. Well, those two were, were very close. And I mentioned Benteen, who was in... The goon show was called Those Crazy People originally. Um, Benteen was, was dropped from, from the, the team um, because Spike Milligan thought he was too crazy. And when Spike Milligan thinks you're too crazy, then you're really crazy, you know. <laughs> but there was a point, I think, I think Sellers went round to, to Milligan's um, flat one day, completely naked, and knocked on the door and said, do you know the name of a good tailor? <laughs> <laughs> so they would play these pranks on each other all the time, you know. Outside of the show, uh -huh. this was the thing, you see. So, I, I mean, they lived, they lived this goonish life, and they were very, very close friends. I mean, this is not something that's completely unfamiliar. We're in a generation now uh, where on social media people are always pulling pranks and, and, and these sort of strange videos. But when they're doing it now, they're doing it and they're filming it for the benefit of perhaps their own narcissism, but for the benefit of other people to watch. But these are antics that happen literally between two individuals that wouldn't have been seen or recognized by anybody else. It doesn't strike me as normal behavior, but I don't know. Funny, though, isn't it? But um, It's funny on the television. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's... Uh, it, it's but like I say, I mean, they all, they all went through, through um, uh, war service. And I mean, all those great uh, 20th century post-war comedians, all the goons, um, uh, Kenneth Connor, uh, John Pertwee, um, they all served in some capacity. Mm. Um, uh, Peter Butterworth, a lot of the carry-on people, Kenneth Williams, um, they'd all served. So, so it was almost a collective experience that they got through that. And mm. as I said before, once you survive, you know, a, a daily... Um, grind of losing your best mates every day you're going to lose someone you know that to get through that the only way to you know justify the rest of your life is to take the mickey out of everything and that's what they did the goon show particularly just just pulled authority apart and they also used a lot of the the the, the barrack room um jargon so they would get past the the, the very strict bbc censors by all the sort of the last turkey in the shop and all that and are you a player of the pink oboe and all that sort of thing, you know? <laughs> the last turkey in the shop, just in case people don't know, that was, um, that was a private who used to manipulate his genitals and it was uh, a kind of uh, party trick, if that's the right. <laughs> if you're in a war zone, if a party trick happens. But the last part was the national anthem. So, to stand. Can you can you rise to the occasion, Tony? Yes, and that's all that right. thing. Yes. Uh, anyway, moving swiftly on. <laughs> Why? No, okay. it up. no, no, I did. You, I did. you can't just say last well, joke in the <laughs> shop and leave it there. For goodness sake, this is going out of the watershed. This is how it gets past all the censors. <laughs> uh, there is something though about the, the sort of humanity, the, the humour that they did though that was very different from what sort of come before, and hugely influential on what's come after. There is a a, a weird. Um, hypermanic, surrealist quality that does feel quite special and unique to them. Yeah, sort, sort of. I mean, they certainly learned... Uh, they were called the Junior Crazy Gang originally. Mm. So, I mean, there was the Crazy Gang in the 1930s, which was Bud Flanagan and Chesney Allen and Nervo and Knox and, and, and these guys. Um, so they did sort of crazy stuff. And we talked about Alston Johnson and the, the oh, Hells, Hells of Poppin', which is, Hells to me, the funniest film of all time, which was 1942, which was complete anarchy, you know. It, it, it certainly, in its, in its opening section, it's very... Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So, and, but Milligan loved all that stuff. And he also loved all the, the, the sort of Popeye um, cartoons and comic strips 
so he would get all that stuff from from there. But yeah, I, I think I think Milligan particularly as 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 writer and performer, the chief writer of of the Goon Show, along with people like Eric Sykes and Larry Stevens. But Milligan was the was the was the the creative force of that comedy. Then yeah, he did. I mean, he certainly inspired the, the Pythons and the Goodies, who in turn inspired Vic and Bob and and Aidan Rick and and all that. So yeah. he he is the 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 godfather of, of alternative comedy. Really, the, I was watching an interview with uh, Milligan and James Whale uh, last week, and and Milligan's talking to Whale about this and about how actually his best writing was probably done whenever he was at his worst mentally. Uh, and there is this really disturbing thing. When he, he had a breakdown on whilst writing The Goon Show, Eric Sykes takes over for Bitten Larry Stevens um, and then goes back to, to being Spike. But that, that sheer force of having to produce this, this brilliantly inventive comedy every week did take a toll. Yeah, of course, absolutely. Well, he, you know, he, his epitaph, apart from the one I told you I was ill, which I love, um, which they wouldn't let him have, but it's in Gaelic on his, on his uh, gravestone, Spike, um, in Sussex. I told you I was ill. But he, in interviews up until that point, he would say, wrote the goon show, died. <laughs> um, which, because everything else after that was, was considered not as good as that. But um, it's, uh, yeah, I, I just think um, it was a sort of therapy. And, and the funny thing about Peter Sellers, obviously he went to Hollywood and became a massive star. Uh, and just before he died in 1980, he came back. They did a, a recording of the Raspberry Song mm -hmm. um, in 1979. And there's a beautiful letter. It's very, it's very moving actually, because he, he, in London, Sellers would would uh, rent an apartment at the Dorchester Hotel, and about the, I think the night before he died, he wrote Spike a letter, just saying, "Can you please just get Harry and you, and I don't care if it's recorded or we sell it to anybody or anything. I don't care. Let's just do some goon shows because I've never been happier in my life than doing the goon shows. Before I was famous and before I became." Peter Sellers, the Hollywood star. I'll pay you to do it. I just want to get together, the three of us, and just do some goon stuff together. It's one of the last things he wrote, and it's, it's beautiful, actually, because for Sellers, in that maelstrom of, of angst that he was going through on his third wife that was, you know, that was collapsing with Lynn Frederick, you know, um, that he wanted to go back to that safe place of comedy and his pals. It's, yeah. he, he did say that uh, he... Keep on watching interviews with Sellers, and Sellers always says, you know, when they ask him about who he really is, he's, he's, he always his response is always, you know, I'm nobody. I don't know who I am. But unless he's playing a character, he feels that he has no identity. There was a me, but I had it surgically removed. Was <laughs> was the line. But when he did being there, which was his penultimate film, which was a person who who was nobody, yeah. um, and it's and it's basically he based it on on Stan Laurel, that sort of complete sort of deadpan face uh, that's an amazing film and again i think i think not winning the oscar that year he lost to dustin hoffman for kramer versus kramer mm. i think that really accentuated the heart attack that came mm. do you want to see a bit we've we got a little clip actually of, of pete oh, sorry, oh, please can i ask why am i here <laughs> why are any of us here tony <laughs> i mean i've never been able yes, to answer that question existential question <laughs> Clip, yes, exactly. It's not of you, it's Peter Sellers. Um, I, I think it's either oh. the Today Show or something. It's, it's, it's the show, it's Peter Sellers. And this was from um, uh, the March of 1980, so three months before he died, and, and, and being there has just come out. So let's look at Sellers. Do you ever go back and see your movies? Do you like uh, to watch yourself in the movies? Do you watch them on television, or do you go to the theaters and watch your movies? No, um, I went last night to see Being There because I hadn't seen it with an audience. And it was uh, very interesting to see the reaction, you know, on various levels. 
Of course, uh, the, the audiences here are very sophisticated. They pick up very quickly, I notice, on, on little innuendos. Really? Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. In different parts of the world, you think audiences are act differently to the same film? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I haven't seen that in yeah. other parts of the world. But other films, they do, yes. What's the difference between a, a, a California audience and a London audience, for instance? Well, a California, uh, a London audience and a New York audience are identical. I really? mean, if you're taking a West End audience, right, yeah. identical. They're very hip. And I would say, like, in Westwood, about the same. About the same. But you get out of those areas <laughs> in England, and you're in a totally You've got to be careful what you show them. Who are you talking as now? Somebody told me you have no voice. Time Magazine's cover story insisted that there is no Peter Sellers, that you are only a, a mass of characterizations, and that inside there is no body. That's true, yes. How did, how did you react to that? Well, uh, I, I didn't react. Uh, I just mouthed <laughs> things. Uh, <clears throat> it's not entirely true. It comes from working for, uh, for years in Radio Gene. Who am I talking to now? Uh, let me see. Uh, he's not in, I'm sorry. <laughs> Anybody there? No. How does somebody who comes from London talk? Well, they, they, I mean, there are so many London accents. Um, it's difficult to say. Uh, I mean, there's... Uh, I mean, you know, people think of Cockney accents. There are five Cockney accents. All right. And there are um, other accents that are also um, from London. And then you have cultured London Well, let's accents. hear them. Well, you don't want to hear... Sure, I want to hear some accents. I want to hear you speak various Englishes. The, the people over here have difficult enough time understanding Michael Caine, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll put subtitles on as you speak. Well, I'll tell you straight out, Gene. What I like about you and your show is you're frank. No, I don't mean like the name. I mean you, what you say is frank. Now, I like that because it gets to the core, see? And when you get to the core, you get the essence. Precious bodily essence. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's sort of a, that's an old sort of cockney accent. And what happens when you get into... Oh, do you mean one of theirs? One of the Hooray Harris. Yes, yes. <laughs> the Hooray Harris, yes. Well, they're very good on TV. And they're, and, they're, and they're quite erudite, you know, and there's a... Uh, it's very interesting, Mr. Shallot, that you should come on the show. Uh, how long have you been doing your show in uh, New York, is it? It's been 64 years. 64 years, how absolutely amazing. And you haven't asked me a new question yet. <laughs> no, well, of course, I've only just started myself. I see. It's just that I went to Oxford, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> and what happens when you have to sell something? What do you say? when you have to sell a product on television? How do you cue well, the control all those, uh, all those TV selling voices are more or less the same, you know? They, they're the same all over the world. Get so-and-so today, you know? Even in Russia, I did one once about cigarettes. Comrades, smoke bruchkits. <laughs> bruchkits are not merely the coolest, the finest, and the best cigarettes in Russia. They are the only cigarettes <laughs> in Russia. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so. Oh, glorious, isn't it? <laughs> Bit of rare stuff there for you. Oh gosh, that was. You 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 have such knowledge. I've I've got a big archive, if you'll pardon the expression. But That's right. uh, yes, I, I I love these people. We were talking about this before you came on, all, all three of us, about that they they are they are they are people very close to my heart. You know, yes. the comedians, as I say, make you happy, and and my God, we need Thank them. We need them. Yes. Thank indeed. God for film. Indeed. That clip just reminded me of another um, famous ad. I wonder if it's in your archive. It's Bridget Bardo from the 50s advertising 
camel cigarettes. And this happens to be true. And she simply smokes on a veranda and says, nothing satisfies me like a camel. <laughs> and <laughs> yes, you can look it up. And this is the same. We sometimes, when we do our show, if, if they ask, because they want the wet take, they want the bar to be open, so we do an interval. And I've, I've, got, a, I've got a slattery commercial break, because you did loads of oh, commercials. <laughs> no, don't show any of those. No, I'm not going, not today. Media, they're, they're on this. Media slut that I was. Still, it was work. <laughs> Paid the bills. I'm struck there by um, watching Sellers and his, his... He is, I mean, Gene picks up on it. He's, he's wherever he is, he's picking up on the accent thing. I mean, he's, he's sort of still playing... Chance the gardener in that moment, and and is this element of uh, I think Sellers almost wants to be loved, so you know the the mimicry that, that that a performer like that does. Is there an element of you know trying to be liked by by people he's playing to his audience? I think so. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're talking about Sellers in particular. Yeah, you're, you're on a chat show, aren't you? So you're yeah. so a he's setting his new film, and b he's setting himself, I suppose, to an extent. He's a comedian. Although, comedy act. although very uncomfortable with kind of being asked to be a performing monkey at that point, which essentially he is being asked until he kind of finds his own, just goes, that, that's it, these, yeah. are my, these are my sticks, yeah. you're going to listen. But, I mean, I think all comedians, you look at any, any comedian, uh, Frankie Howard was a good example, because oh. Frankie Howard was... Oh, no, no, but, oh. But in, no, every time I say, I should mention Frank, should I? Because I was like, I don't know. Um, but he was, <laughs> I met him a couple of times. He was a real, you know, manic depressive, but on chat shows, he was a sort of funny manic depressive so he so he he would often if he was being interviewed by michael parkinson or terry wogan turn it around and start asking them questions he mm. would rather not answer questions at all or or just do 10 or 15 minutes of rehearsed shtick um he didn't like doing interview shows he he, he thought it revealed too much of his psyche which it obviously does do you like doing chat shows tony i um i i i i um, um well, not this one, because... Uh, <laughs> no, I do, because I haven't been asked any questions yet. But that's, that's fine, because it's your show. I'm just sitting here as um, eye candy. This and is I a conversation. It's not, it's not a chat show, is it? This is more us kind of exchanging thoughts. And at right. some point, we'll bring them in as well. Ooh. Oh, gosh. The, so uh, the eyes to the, to, to the side. The eyes to the right and the nose to the left. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm just sitting here. I'll, I'll answer anything you but, want. But, uh, actually, oh, we, you're asking me. Do you like just, doing chat shows? You've done, chat, you've done lots of chat shows. Yes, I have. Time, I did. Yes. I've done Parkinson and uh, Aspel and uh, Gay Wogan. Uh, Gay Byrne, the late Gay Byrne, who uh, sadly passed away, as opposed to happily passed away. I don't know why people say he sadly passed away. But yeah, yeah. So I did the kind of chat show mm. uh, circuit, and that was uh, uh, fun. Well, we did, would we, would we you go on with your persona? Would you try and be funny, or would you just be quite candid about stuff? Even then, uh, pretty candid, uh, depending on the question. The uh, the humour can only come from if the question is badly predicated. There's nowhere to go. Hmm. Well, we were on the radio this afternoon. Yes, we were. Yes, I remember that now. <laughs> Anyone hear it? Hey, yes, who heard did. it? Oh, gosh, it sound all right. <laughs> what did you think? Please shout. Oh, thank you. We'll pay you later. Thanks, mate. Cheers. <laughs> but I mean, something like this, assuming you still get asked to do these things, there, there must be an element of, of... I mean, has that changed for you, the way that an interview show will work? Um, yeah, it does in that I'm never asked. That makes it problematic. Well, yes, I imagine it does. Mm. 
your imagination is working then. Sometimes, <laughs> not always. Do you enjoy, because you've done a few, haven't you? Do you, do you enjoy doing live yeah. radio? Um, I enjoy doing live radio, yeah. There's a, there's a buzz out of it, but there is always this element where you don't know where it's going to go. And that, even, if, you've, so even if, you, if you're doing our job, and you have a set of things that you've, you know you're supposed to What is our ask. job, Robert? I think, I, I think we, we make a career... Yes, explain! Now! We make a career out of talking about dead people. That's, this, is, that's, this is very true, absolutely, yeah. But um, uh, the, the nice point that was made today, and the, the important point, I think, and, and the basis of this show that was your idea, was about male yeah. mental health and the fact that, you know, men apparently should be macho and, and hide their inner feelings and all that nonsense. And you made the good point about, you know, if women come out and say, then that's almost accepted isn't it but but men doing it is almost considered brave now i don't know why it is but no no that's that's an odd word if if, if men talk about um um being uh, mentally fragile they're seen as uh, somehow uh self-indulgent and all that uh, stigmatizing stuff about oh get over yourself stop whinging and everything and uh it's getting less stigmatized now it mm. certainly is but there's a way to go and, and I think one also runs the risk of being uh, seen as mm, uh, self-indulgent and very in, having, having this intense um, feeling of um, interiority and uh, self-absorption. And it's, it's just the same with anyone. I genuinely feel that mental ill health is not a lifestyle choice. No, the two jokes, the only two jokes I've come up with, and I think oh, I said this on the radio, is no one in their right mind wants to be mentally ill. <laughs> Two, uh, with bipolarity, um, man goes into a restaurant, uh, <laughs> orders a table for one, uh, the waiter comes over, asks the man or the woman, can I take your order? The person replies, yes, I'll have what I'm having. <laughs> I still think that's a good joke. It doesn't get many <laughs>, laughs. But when you think about it the next day, it makes sense. It, help, it helps you make sense of the... <laughs> it does the, of the world. Of the world, yeah. There was an, there was an amazing... Uh, sorry, Robert. There was an amazing uh, um, mime artist and clown of the 1920s called Grok. Do you know anybody called Grok? A white-faced white comedian. Um, and, and he was going through all sorts of terrible things. And he went to a psychiatrist and just, you know, explained that my, my wife is, is leaving me, my, my children hate me, um, I, I don't know what the point of my life is, you know, I, I can't make sense of anything at all. And the psychiatrist said, well, you know, go across the street at the theatre, there's a wonderful performer called Grok. Um, he will cheer you up. And he said, but doctor, I am Grok. You know, so, so, so where does the comedian go? You know, where, where, do, they, where do they find that relief? Um, and I think that's why all these people, and, and I think just people who aren't performers even, you, you, you use comedy to get over things. And it's so important. That's why I'm, I'm so passionate about comedy. I know I, I make my living from the history of comedy, but I, th I, I think the actual context of it, why, why comics are so loved. You know, when, when we lost Rick Mayall, when we lost Les Dawson, you know, the nation mourned. They really, Eric Morecambe, you know, my God, much more than, I mean, the greats of theatre, Olivier or John Gilgood, when a comedian dies, the whole, you, you lose something. You really do, you know. Well, it's because they, they touch us in a way that, that a theatre performance doesn't always, there's a way that we can connect with them because there's almost something about humour, I think, that is, 
in in all of us it's it's the everyman. Um, so that that ability to get up on stage. Also, there's just that sheer connection, that sheer power of a comic performance. When you're up there on stage and you're making a room full of people laugh, that that's a very very special gift. It is very very powerful and it does touch. There are very few actors who can get up on stage and make a room weep, but a good comedian will 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 cheer everybody up. And again, it comes back to that release of endorphins and that, that thing where you know you go back to these people. I, I can't help but go back to Rick and Aid beating the shit out of each other for half an hour or, you know, and, and still be best friends at the end of it as a way of kind of making myself feel better because the sheer in, enjoyment and the enthusiasm and everything else. Um, the same way growing up, watching people like Tony on, on Whose Line, you know, that, that sheer power within that performance and, and that ability and then just finding myself and, and you know, Gills of laughter. So for, for you and I, Robert, you're younger than me, but but Rick and Aid and Tony and Stephen Fry and people like that, it was I was watching these old guys, you know, even even then. But the fact that there were people contemporary doing it and and touching me, you know, in such a powerful way that they actually they changed my life, you know. Who who were your 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 heroes of of comedy when you were sort of sixteen, seventeen, eighteen? Were you? Oh gosh, it w it would have been. Um <laughs> all the people you've mentioned and uh, the Pythons. I actually thought, actually, the, in a strange way, the goodies were even stranger than the Pythons because they took the silliness to... Uh, would you agree? I mean, you know more than I do. But they, I, I, mean, I, I absolutely adored the goodies as a kid, yeah. 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 Well, I went, I went through the, um, uh, the 80s just wishing I, I, I could meet them and, and shake their hands and, and just thank them for... Making my childhood Indeed. such a lovely, lovely, happy place, Indeed. and uh, yeah, they're now on speed dial, which is lovely. And, <laughs> and also, in, also people like uh, obviously Tommy Cooper, uh, Benny Hill, mm. which then uh, went uh, through that phase of oh no, that's so un PC, you can't laugh at Benny Hill. When in fact, when you look back on it, one, he was a genius and an actor and a songwriter, and it was always the men who came off worse. Yes, there were ladies in skimpy costumes, but it was always the man at the end who was made to look stupid, and his range of characterization was, um, I think, breathtaking. And you were talking the other day about hmm, something like better than Prozac. Watch comedy, <laughs> get the dolphins. <laughs> Get the dolphins. But you're right, the, the Benny Hill thing, particularly the BBC stuff, there were things he would play all the characters in, like, sort of uh, a parody of Jukebox Jewelry, for example. That's right. And he would do, like, sort of spoofs of film noir playing Sidney Greenstreet and Peter Laurie. And uh, he was an absolute genius. And I think the sad thing about Benny Hill, he went to his grave thinking that he was, uni well, not university, certainly hated in his own country. Um, you know, his, his, one of his last things were, you, you, you can see me in every country in the world apart from my own which was the saddest thing. He wanted to work and he just couldn't get a gig because... And also Thames treated him so badly. After earning Thames TV so much money, they didn't... And while still selling the show around the world, but then cutting the show. And yeah. they didn't give him any notice. Mm. I mean, as a kid, shameful people, people like Benny Hill and uh, Frankie Howard, who, who died the same weekend. Same weekend. No, no, no. Well, the, the weird thing about that was because it was East, Easter weekend of 1992, and, um, and, and Benny Hill actually had died already, uh, and Frankie uh, died, I think, on Easter Monday. Um, but, but the news broke of Frankie Howard's death first, and they were trying to contact Benny because they, they never worked together, but they were contemporaries and they were great, great friends. And Dennis Kirtland, um, Benny's great producer, director, um, would often do quotes on Benny's behalf. So, you know, Benny 
paid tribute to Frankie Howard after he died. Mm. Um, the, the power of the, the thing. But the, That's the, how funny he was, folks. He was funny from the grave. So when I, I was 11, uh, I think, then, and I mean, those, I remember those deaths sticking in my head. I loved watching Frankie Howard. I loved watching Benny Hill in particular. And, you know, I never had a problem with him with Kenny Everett. Yeah, loved well, him as well, and that, that kind Kenny of was bizarre, surrealist, over the top mm. comic. And I didn't, still kind of don't see the harm in it. Um, I want to go back. Can we talk about Hancock? Sure, yeah. Absolutely. Because Hancock's is, is, is kind of a, a very interesting figure in many ways. Uh, you know, he's lauded by, by many. Um, but I think for me, a lot of, hit, a lot of Hancock is, I mean, as a performer, he's amazing. But he's not the writer. He's, he's Oh, no, fair enough. He's, he's, but he's nor was Peter Sellers. No. Um, but um, Hancock, I think, uh, the genius of Alan Simpson and Ray Galton, who, who wrote the great Hancock shows, um, they found in Hancock their their voice. You know, they found they found the person that could make their their words sing. Really. Do we have the, a Hancock the, clip? Absolutely. Do you want do you want funny or introspective? Tony, what would you like? Yes. <laughs> let's. They're, they're quite sure. Let's have both. Let's, okay. let's let's show. If you've got the Hancock clip from the bed sitter, and that's yeah. This this would put it into context. This was basically um, Hancock's half hour had come to an end um, because of Hancock's request for that show to come to an end and he'd gone to Alan Simpson and Ray Golden and said look we're losing Sid James we're losing Hattie and Kenneth Williams had gone before but we're losing Sid James and he said oh, I, want, I don't want to become a double act with Sid James I, I, this is my show I'm Tony Hancock I want to be up there as this wonderful you know build me up and then you can the, the higher I am the, the farther I can fall and the funnier it is when I'm down in the mire and Ray and Alan bless them said right you bugger if you want to be on your own, you're going to be on your bloody own for the whole 25 minutes of this show. So there's nobody else in this apart from Hancock, but this is the bed sitter. I suppose so. Oh, but I'm not far out anyway. Ah, then. What was I doing before I burnt my lip? I was blowing smoke rings. No, it wasn't. I was reading. Oh, yes, of course. Now then, I better finish this off. It's got to be back by tomorrow. Chapter 24, three to go. I don't remember him. Arthur Whittaker? Let's have a look at the last chapter. I don't remember any of this at all. What happened before then? Oh, she met him and they went up the hayloft together. Yes, I remember that. that was very good. That... Yes, I'll have to read that bit again. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't know what happened then. Oh, it's a waste of time me reading. I can never remember anything. Too much of my mind, you see. Nuclear warfare. Future of mankind. China, Spurs. <laughs> yes, it's hard graph for we intellectuals these days. Never mind, let's have a quick go at Bertrand Russell here. Now then, let's have a good look at this. What's this? Human Knowledge, Its Limits and Scope by Bertrand Russell. Introduction. They mean, why didn't they say so? <laughs> oh, I don't know what he's talking about. The limit and scope of human knowledge. Well, we soon find out my limit, haven't we? <laughs> Three sentences. 
No, no, I should know. It's in English. I should know what he's talking about. He's a human being, the same as me, using words. English words available to us all. Now, concentrate. No, it's him. <laughs> it's him that's the fault. He's a rotten writer. <laughs> a good writer should be able to put down his thoughts clearly in the simplest terms, understandable to everybody. It's him. He's a bad writer. <laughs> Not going to waste my time reading him. <clears throat> ah, that's more like it. Lady, don't fall backwards. Unpick <laughs> 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 um, um, rat. Yeah, um, well, bloody masterclass. Oh, wonderful. I mean, the, but the, but the, the silences, that's just the yes. expression, isn't it? And that know? kind of intense, reflective melancholy mm. that comes, and then there's a burst of laughter. Wow. And, of course, Lady Don't Fall Backwards is a reference to the previous series, Hancock's Half Hour, uh, The oh. Missing Page, which was the, the oh. you know... Uh, it tore it out. Oh, Sid James... Probably someone lit a frag with lit a frag with the last page. So there's a reference to the previous series uh, and all the educating Archie stuff. Hancock, of course, had been one of the uh, the tutors on radios, educating Archie, and would apparently wake up in a cold sweat just thinking about those radio shows. Um, so eventually, of course, on the radio that was uh, back in the fifties. But but Max Bygraves did it, and Bruce Forsyth did it, and Hancock and Dick Henry did it. You know. Um, and uh, yeah, but I mean, it, it, as I say, that was that was that was Golden Simpson's, like you know, if you want to be on your own, buddy, you're going to be on your own. And it's as you say, a masterclass. I mean, he, but for me, he's the he's probably the finest television comedy actor we've ever had. I think Hancock for me. Why, why do you think he's held up with such um, such a claim? I mean, we do we do love his sort of his uh, hangdog melancholy. Um, you know, it's almost like audiences getting off on his. Sadness and frustration. Well, I think it's like, like Milligan and, and, and the Pythons. I think if Hancock goes through it, then we sort of don't have to. Is that fair? You know, I think so. I think it's, um, I think it's uh, emotional um, irrigation by proxy, almost. Uh, sorry, that sounds very fanciful, but I think it is. I think it's uh, when you see a really good comedian showing melancholy, it does uh, release not necessarily dolphins but it makes you empathetic mm. towards their situation and therefore that's why uh yeah comedy is uh useful sorry i was just uh, picking up on the um the bertrand russell thing because that was a uh, bertrand so bertrand russell in the back of a cab wasn't it and so um the cab driver turns around and says so it's you in it that's bertrand russell so yes it is so what's it all about then? And Bertrand Russell allegedly replies, I have no fucking idea. <laughs> Which from the greatest philosophers ever born, that's quite something. That's but it's yeah, it's you like the, that, yeah. Yeah, but it's, it's like the end of uh, Candide by Voltaire. All this philosophical roundabouting, and then the final sentence is... After all that, il faut cultiver le jardin. So after all that really deep philosophical thought, he just says, oh, I've got to do the bloody gardening. <laughs> that's the main thing. And when it comes down to it, that's what existentialism is. And that clip, um, 
and I have, think I have seen it before, but that was a bloody wonderful piece. But, uh, I mean, beautiful <coughs> writing one, and beautiful one play. Yeah. as well. Yeah, one, absolutely, yeah, yeah. And that was before uh, the car crash he had that dictated, he did the blood donor by what, reading off, off boards. He, he learnt that 25-minute routine and it was just you know one 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 take allegedly um but but hancock's and, and and those shows they deal with things that don't date if you watch the those shows it's about going to the laundrette or doing mm. football pools or going to the pub and it's stuff that we do now and i think i'm often asked the difference between american comedy and and and, and uh, uh british comedy and i think the american sitcoms tend to sort of um celebrate success and and you know, happy people and, and, and financially successful people. Whereas the great heroes of, of British sitcom are losers, really. Mm. You know, Basil Fawlty, Del Boy, Hancock, Steptoe. You know, they're, they're, all, they're all down there. And it's funny down there because if they're down there, then we can sort of laugh along with them because we're down there as well, you know. That's interesting because I know um, that... Um I've just started for the first time watching Friends mm. and I know it's vastly successful... But a kind of me thinks, okay, um, why why are the why is the flat you live in so richly, expensively furnished? How do you earn your money? Why are you still at that age, still living alone together? Hmm? For God's sake, what sort of fucking fantasy world are you living in? And when you compare it to something like the liver birds, I was like, yeah, that's real. Uh, and you think, well, move out, get your own life. Or So, um, so I just wanted to pick up on that point. Yeah, yeah. it's true. I mean, that, but it's, 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 it's the gritty realism of, of British sitcoms, yeah. you know, and usually written by one or two people, whereas Friends is written by committee. Um, and, and, and you lose the identity of those characters in a weird... So I love Friends. I mean, I'm not knocking Friends. It's, a, it's, it's for what it is. It's a sleek, brilliantly made sitcom. Um, but it doesn't get me in my heart like Hancock or, or Steptoe or whatever, the young ones or something like that. I think, as you say, it's, it's the characters. It's the, 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 um, the working class mentality, really, isn't it? You know, there's, there's people there that we can accept and that we can believe and that we can identify with, whereas privilege is reserved for the privileged few. Um, which I suppose is America's ideology, ideology uh, generally speaking. Hancock is a, unlike some of the other comics though that we're watching where you kind of feel that there's a bit of joy there, I don't necessarily feel ever that Hancock is really ever enjoying things. You know, the, the, even, even when you can kind of see him smiling away there, I still think that it looks like pain. And I don't know how much that's just the well, knowledge of what comes. or if it's, go, go on and Simpson... I'll make this pretty sorry, Tony, because this is yeah. But Golden and Simpson um, spotted Hancock. Um, they were they were doing a radio show called Happy Go Lucky, uh, and uh, never put happy in the title because it's guaranteed to fail. <laughs> um, and this show was going down the tube. A, a forgotten comedian called Derek Royal was the was the star of it. And Hancock was doing a little um, skit um, called The Eager Beavers, which is a sort of Scoutmaster sketch. And Hancock was in it with uh, Peter Butterworth and Graham Stark and and Bill Kerr and a few other people. Uh, and that little skit was written by Galton and Simpson mm. when they were in their sort of early twenties, and and you know, so so they met, and it, the three of them really got on well. And they saw in Hancock, it's basically just a heightened version of of him, really. But I knew I knew I was very privileged to know them very well, Galton and Simpson, and 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 they said, you know, they lived long enough to see all these biopics and 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 read these books about how sad Hancock was. Mm. 
He said, you know, Rob, if you'd been in the recording, you know, the Paris Theatre doing the Radio Hancock's Half Hour, he said, we have Tony Hancock, Sid James, Bill Kerr, Kenneth Williams, and Hattie Jakes, five of the dearest, kindest, best laughers in the business. They were literally killing themselves laughing um, um, doing those shows. And the total joy, uh, you can buy the uncut uh, radio shows on CD now. Uh, and when I was a kid, they were cut for broadcast, but some of them, they have little moments of, 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 of fluffing lines and things. And mm -hmm. you can hear Hancock just having the best time. So, so he, he did enjoy it, actually. But I think the suicide note was things go wrong too many times, was the, the last thing he wrote. And he was doing this Australian show. So, so there is a, there, there is a pressure on on these performers as well to kind of keep up a, a certain image and also, I guess, to keep up their career to a certain extent. I mean, Hancock seems to have gone downhill rapidly after the show starts to fail, um, and, and just struggles more and more with that. Well, and that's that was the last BBC he did in '61, uh -huh. um, and it, it, you know the show was so popular it would empty pubs. You know, people would, would, would close their fish and chip shops for half an hour when Hancock was on because they knew they wouldn't sell any fish because <laughs> everybody, everybody stayed at home. He would walk down high streets in London and every single house, you could hear his voice coming out of every single door because it was what you watched. You know, he was the best loved, most successful comedian on the television in 1961. Seven years later, he was dead. So, that so are, we, are we hitting on this thing that Tony said earlier on again uh, about the you know once the audience's applause has stopped, that that drug can't be replaced, and this is where where Hancock kind of is looking for. Yes, that's right. I think um, uh, when um, audience and um, applause and laughter generally considered to be the uh, second most addictive substances in uh, life, and uh, where do you go uh, when you come off stage? You reach for other things, either to bring you down or bring you up. And uh, I think that happens quite a lot. And, um, and also, if you, <clears throat> if you go home and there's no one there, mm. that's another thing. So for Hancock, it was alcohol. Mm -hmm. um, his big hero was a, was a comedian called Sid Field, um, who died very, very young in 1950, great stage comedian. Um, and he unwisely thought he had one drink before he went on once and thought he was better than he had been the night before. So then the next night he had two drinks and the next night he had three drinks and, and he thought he was getting funnier and funnier and he was getting worse and worse. Mm. And I think for Hancock that was the problem. So, so he did a series in 1963 for ITV, which is really good but not as popular. Mm. And ironically, the, the show that was beating Hancock in 1963 was Steptoe and Son, <laughs> written, written by Galton and Simpson. So um, it was a real battle. Um, uh, and they stayed friends. And one of the most moving things, I remember um, um, Alan Simpson telling me uh, when Hancock was you know, halfway around the world in Australia doing this show that was not doing too well. Um, and he was obviously in his cups. Uh, and he phoned Alan Simpson, uh, which would have been Hancock's like two o'clock in the afternoon and he was completely incoherent, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and he was just swigging whiskey and whatever. And he said to Alan, he said, look, when I get back from this god-awful place, when I get back, get Ray, get you and me in a room together. I've got an idea that will knock their fucking eyes out. <laughs> and Alan Simpson said, I wish I'd asked him what it was, <laughs> but, but he, did, <laughs> he didn't. And he sort of, I just, if, if, I'd, if I'd actually had that conversation and, and, and engaged him, I might have just saved him over that, over that moment of just distress that Hancock had. And he just 
you know, took a load of pills and that was it. Can we show the other Hancock clip? Yeah, now this, this, oh. is, this is the very famous, this is the face-to-face -face interview um, with John Freeman, <clears throat> which has been um, cited as, as the, the thing that really put Hancock over the edge, but it didn't really. I mean, Hank, they became friends afterwards. And John Freeman's, I don't know if you know this show, but it's a very famous 1960s interview show where the subject is in severe light and John Freeman is like a shadowy, like a MI5 interrogator. Uh, and the questions can be quite severe but this is the end of it and this is basically Hancock analyzing how important comedy is to him so this is Hancock face to face please Marty um, facing an individual performance do you actually enjoy it or is it hell while you're doing it no it's a bit of hell just before it starts um, there's a lot of you know champing around and trying to get an edge a right edge so that you are relaxed but also have a, a kick so that you are going to be alive and, and um, also relaxed it needs a great deal of concentration and hold upon yourself to do this. Um, sometimes, uh, it's a little too quick to really enjoy, I think, but, um, but there you are, it's very challenging. It, it, it is enjoyable as a whole, but um, it's, there's too much uh, immediate concentration to really, you can't really completely say, oh, well, we can have a bit of a ball, you know. Looking back on your first 35 years, jolly straight question, are you happy or not? Um, I've been very fortunate, I think, and I have everything that, uh, could, um, that anybody could want to, to uh, make them happy. Uh, but, wait a minute, I haven't finished it. I was going to say that um, the, the, the only happiness you could, to, I could achieve would be to perfect the talent that I have, whatever it may be, however small it may be. That is the whole purpose of it, and that is the whole purpose of, of, of what I do. Uh, some of the newspaper writers who've tried to puzzle out what makes you tick have, have said that you're the angst man, the, 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 the anxiety man. Now, have you any notion of what your anxiety is? Do you, in fact, get a kick out of your anxiety? I don't think so. Anxiety. Would you explain it a bit more? Well, something appears to me even at the end of this conversation, to be eating you. You say that your happiness is just ahead of you still. Oh, There's I something troubling you about the world. I'd like to know what it is. I wouldn't expect happiness. I don't. I don't think that's possible. But um, I'm very fortunate to be able to, to work in something that I like. I think to, to, have a, 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 to work in something that is, is pleasure is, is all anybody can ask. Um, you wouldn't then change your way of life at all? I'd try and improve it, yes. Well, improve it, but you'd go on in the same way, getting better at what you're doing. Yes, and if such a time came that I found that I'd, I'd come to the end of what I could develop out of my own ability, or limited, however it may be, then I would, wouldn't want to do it anymore. Tony Hancock, I wonder if you really get very much out of your triumphs. You, you've got cars that you don't drive. <laughs> Uh, you've got health, which you tell me is a bit ropey because you find, I didn't it, so tell you well, you, you find it so difficult to learn your lines. You've got money that you can't really spend. You worry about your weight. I spend now, the money. I do. I, I enjoy it. Well, what I want to put to you as a, as a final question is this. You could stop all this tomorrow if you wanted to. You're rich enough to coast along for the rest of your days. Now, money, why money is of no count in this. Well, tell me why you go well, on. Because, hmm? Tell me why you go on as a last answer. Because it absolutely fascinates me because I love it and because it is my entire life. quite emotional at that I mean because that's it isn't it that's comedy keeps you gets you through the worst of times we were talking a little bit there about the um, the addictions and the, the sort of the, the crutches I guess that that some performers turn to um, in terms of how to deal with that whenever the, the euphoria of the live audience isn't there or or even just to kind of 
improve your stage persona. Um, I wonder if that's something that's worth sort of teasing out in terms of collectively how we deal with, with sort of these things. Um, how did you deal with stuff, Tony, when things got... Oh, sorry, you lost me. You, you, yeah, yeah, well, you look very pensive there. Sorry, I, was, oh, no, sorry. I thought I thought an answer was brewing there for a minute. <laughs> no, no, I was just uh, wondering at that, wondering mm. in both. Does, does that affect you as a, as a fellow comedy actor and comedian to see somebody, you know, obviously suffering and 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 having putting their heart and soul into their comedy? Um, <clears throat> yes, it does. Um, in, um, goshi. He dealt with some very pedestrian questions um, with grace, um, but there was clearly a pain in his eyes. And, um, yeah. There was an element there, I thought, of character assassination as well, where he's, he's, he's literally being torn there was, right down. That was an elephant trap, no yeah. question. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, I, I suspect that some of the interviews that you've had over the last lot of years have, have must have gone down similar paths. Um, yeah, sort of. Except I've um, I've not I've not really lost uh, patience. Well, I did once. Um, I think I might have. Okay, I, I was auditioning for the part of uh, the prince in uh, uh, some kind of trendy. Um, it was when the um, the Rose Opened or The Globe. Uh, yeah. And it was, I think it was in a bad place at the time. And I don't normally lose my rag at all because it's, it's ugly when anyone does. But it was, um, <clears throat> it was uh, so, <clears throat> right, this was, right, Prince, Romeo and Juliet. <clears throat> he comes on. Rebellious subjects, enemies to peace. Folk. Could you stop there, Tony? What I want you to do, this fucking guy, what are you doing, milking this invisible goat? <laughs> yes, don't act it, just say it, just say it. So he's not angry, just say it. <laughs> Rebellious subjects, animals to peace, throw your mistempered weapons to the ground and hear the prince, uh, the presence of your... Three civil brawls, bread of an airy word uh, by the old capital of Montague, uh, thrice deserved quite a hard piece. <clears throat> what do you think that means? I think it means the prince is angry because he's trying to deal with sectarianism in Verona. The Capulets and the Montagues are at each other's throat, and at the bottom is a love story. Good. But what do you think it really means? <laughs> of course I know what it fucking means! Good. Use that anger. <laughs> right. That's the point. Rebellious subjects, enemies to peace. You throw your mistempered weapons to the ground and hear the sentence of your moving prince. Three civil brawls bred of an airy word by the old Capulet and Montague have thrice disturbed the quiet of our peace. If ever you disturb our peace again, your life shall pay the forfeit of the peace. For now we gone! 
is that any better? <laughs> I didn't get the parts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh, God, no. Wow. But then uh, it was it was going to be set in uh, neo-Stalinist Cardiff <laughs> in 2084. It didn't last long anyway. <laughs> we, we were chatting just before we went on stage there about the about the Dutch courage of, of performances. Um, Having a, a debate about whether or not this is ever a good idea for, for us as, as sort of... Not for me, it's not, Robert. No. Um, no, that's why I, ne I never do it. I, I think I told you I've only ever drunk before one show when I was doing a show with Danny Baker uh, and my, my recently ex-girlfriend. I was on tour with her. She's an actor and writer. Or what? She still is, but she's not my girlfriend anymore. Uh, and she was in um, uh, the Lake District. And Dan, uh, Danny Baker, uh, phoned me and said, "Can you help me out of Stuck? Um, I'm doing this Waterstones um, event for my new book in in, in London, in Regent Street. Um, can you can you sort of sub as the interviewer?" And I said, "Yeah, sure." So I got the train down from the uh, down from the Lake District to London, uh, knackered. Uh, met up with Dan, and he was having a beer, and I thought, oh, fuck it, I'll have a beer. And I had one, but that's the only time, because, I mean, uh, you know me very well, we're all, we're all, we're all, we're all pals here. Um, and and my, my, uh, my, my crutch for mental uh, health is, is, is alcohol and comedy. Mm. It's that it's heady, heady combination. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so, so I, know, I know damn well if I have one, I'll have six. Yeah. It's not an uncommon place for us to find. We we all find some way of of, of releasing our our kind of demons when we have our mental health struggles. Yeah, yeah. And this is try playing the prince in Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> <laughs> Helped me. Um, oh, I feel better for doing that. Oh, it's released something, hasn't so it? Yes, it's released something. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I, I'm always worried about the risk of of kind of going down into some sort of path of of substance. Use or dependency, and it's a you know, it's a very fine, delicate line that that one treads. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to get to the point. I think I was telling yeah. that story about Michael yeah. Caine when he drank a lot in the eighties. He didn't want to get to the stage when he was a drunk, and if he had, he had to give up completely. Then he would hate that. He likes to have a glass of wine. And I mean, my, I, I don't mind saying this is you know your your friends here. Um, I didn't drink until I was about. 21. Uh, people think I've been drinking, you know, since I was six or something. Um, but I, um, I started yeah, you started, eight, you started eight, didn't eight you? Yeah, yeah. Priests. Yeah. Oh, priests. There you go. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was involved in, a, in my. I, I lost a girlfriend in a car crash, and then um, four months later, I was in a crash, which I was almost killed in. And I think that that those two things, just before I was 21, I, I literally just lost it for a few years. Uh, and that started that. Mm. And then when my dad died in 2003, that was also, I lost about, professionally, I mean, um, I, I, I didn't so much turn work down as just not answer mm. requests for things. It's, I mean, it's an easy position to be in. I've been there myself. I had a couple of breakdowns um, after being in a, a horrible relationship, mm. uh, an abusive situation that involved alcoholism as well. And... Uh, after that, I mean, after I'd had my breakdowns, I kind of shut myself away because that was the only way to deal with it. Um, and once you shut yourself away, people forget that you exist. You stop being phoned, you stop being called, you certainly stop being invited to things and being asked for work. Um, and the buzz and everything else that comes with the sort of stuff that, that, that we do is no longer accessible to you. 
Um, and you can just feel yourself kind of spiralling. For me, I could feel myself spiralling further and further I think, down. I think we've all, to some extent, self-sabotaged, haven't we, Tony? Oh, well, I, I, I can't speak uh, for you or either of you. I can speak for myself, and the answer is uh, yes. And where does that self-sabotage come from? Is it uh, innate depression or anxiety? Where does that come from? Is it overwork? Do you overcompensate for overwork? Uh, by replacing the uh, the glee of applause and laughter with something to keep you up, and then you're up for three days, and then uh, you come down for three days with booze, and then you cut out one, but you remain on the other. In my case, uh, uh, booze. I still drink uh, far too much. Uh, every day I'm trying to... Uh, uh, deal with that, and that makes me sound like some kind of victim, but it's not. Uh, but some of these things, I think, I'd, uh, and we'll find out with a genetic uh, test, uh, which which I've done. Like, oh, the interesting. Oh, I did a yeah a DNA thing, but uh, the yeah of saliva. But the leaflet was strange. It was quite badly printed actually, because it said, because it said, it said they missed out the word kit, and it said your saliva will arrive in the post. Within two weeks. I thought, how did, how the fuck does that work? I don't, what is yucky? They missed out the word kit, but it's called, yes, genetic links to anxiety and uh, depression. And uh, yeah, uh, the alcohol. But as I said, since I started when I was young at eight, that's bad, but that, that wasn't uh, my uh, choice. We can talk about about that tomorrow night. Sure. Sorry. No, no. But I mean, I, I think it, it's all relevant. So I mean, th there is this element of of, of mm. trauma. I think that comes into a lot of these things that usually sort of helps. To, we may already have these conditions already within us, but sometimes that can help trigger and push us off over an edge, one way or another. Um, thinking. Can I talk about nuns tomorrow. <laughs> tomorrow. We'll talk about nuns tomorrow. Can we? Uh, well, is, it, is, is it a nice story about nuns? It's, it's a, it's, is, it, is it like Eugenia's story? <laughs> a genus? Is it like Eugenia's story? Eugenia's story? Yeah, Eugenia Lola Brigada story that you told earlier was quite good. I didn't say anything. Is they don't know about Gina. No, they don't know about it, but you told well, us about it. I'm not going to tell you. It's private. You, you, how dare you betray my confidence <laughs> by talking about... I can tell you about Gina Lola. No, a nun. Right. So I was bashed around the head by a nun. Because when... I, oh, this is also around the time I was eight. Sorry, I know it. But I've just got to get this on my chest now. Right. Um, we all had to uh, stand up and say the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven. I got it wrong. Uh, one day I said, Our Father who art in heaven, how are you, by the way? <laughs> And the nun came over and waddled me and concussed me. And uh, I, because I had a kind of linguistic, uh, talking, talking, you know, fluency. I was quite fluent in language. I think that came from the, so we're getting back into the comedy thing. And I said to her, after she hit me, I said, don't assault me, you barren cow. <laughs> Which is an odd thing for an eight-year-old. <laughs> to say and that's the end of my anecdotes 
I think God would have been quite pleased that you were asking oh, how he so was. Too. How are you, by I mean, the way? most yeah. of us go to God and we're it just like, an God, can I have audience. some stuff? Does, you know? <laughs> That's better yeah. than hallowed be thy name. I'm not dissing religion or anything. No. Religion is great if it makes people... God, are you, are you okay? Can I, are you good to take this message yes. from me now? That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of the addictions, the meaning, and everything else, I think this, it leads us, this leads us quite nicely into Robin Williams. I think. Oh yes, Robin Williams. Who, yes. You know, oh, gosh, was yeah. I think for most yeah. of us was was a, a sheer genius, but a man that had worked his way through all kinds of substance issues yes. as well. Yes. What, what was he, that? What was that line you mentioned earlier about that Stephen Fry said about Robin's uh, cocaine addiction? Oh yeah. Um, uh, my friend, I'm, I'm privileged to call him my friend, Stephen Fry has been a huge influence on me comedically, but also in the way uh, I think, sorry, turning into a precedent, the way I think. Uh, yeah, so Robin Williams was the only person uh, he'd ever met who used cocaine to calm him down. <laughs> and it was true. And that was, uh, I think it's called... Um, psychopharmacologically an obverse reaction and it works when he used the devil's dandruff it's a, it's a frightening prospect to think that that was him yep. when he was calm yeah, yes yeah you know but he, i mean you know i never saw him live but i've seen the videos and and, and his his imagination and his 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 ability to, to to change gear comedically uh robin williams was just extraordinary and I think he's the only person to get anywhere near to Peter Sellers in terms of being a brilliant screen actor mm. as well as a brilliant comedic actor. He just is wonderful on, on film. And so those, those performances are just incredible. And I remember when he died, it was August, um, and I was up in Edinburgh. Mm. And it, I think the news broke quite late. I was in a, in a bar with a load of comedians. I think Michael Legg and, and Robin Ince and a few other pals up there. And it came on this silent, as pubs do, have a silent... TV of the of the twenty four hour rolling news mm. and it just we just just couldn't believe it we just this a, a room full of comedians just welling up because we all loved him you know he was and to think that 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 firecracker of comedy genius could think I can't cope with life anymore I've yeah. got to, I've got to bail out and it was just unbelievable really. is it, I mean I think there's something about Robin Williams is passing that also speaks to, to a lot of us in that I guess because he seems so full of life because he seems so enthusiastic and he made everybody laugh um, when you suddenly saw that, that somebody was actually going through all this this other pain and masking it so thoroughly um, that's almost I, I think it's something we could identify with because most of us mask what's actually going on so conversations like these that, that we've been having the last couple of days aren't often had um, very openly. I mean, everything's done behind closed doors. That's, that's right. And that's the... Uh, I was talking back to uh, <clears throat> language, because I do think language is still uh, really the best idea to get one thought into another person's head, and that's the idea of uh, putting a persona mm. up, and that comes from the Greco-Latin, which means speaking through a mask, mm. which is what tragic again it's happy sad you speak through it do you find talking helps i find talking like this helps because it's fun and uh, it's nice to get some laughs and uh, mm. i'm grateful to have you as a friend and you as a new friend as well i hope and sorry that sounds greasy chat <laughs> show talk 
But, uh, you I, I sycophantic actually, bastard, Tony. Thank you very much. I'll take it. That's the <laughs> kindest thing anyone's ever said to me. But I actually do, uh, do, do, do mean it, and a couple of other friends, uh, one mm. very special friend. And now I feel as if I want feelings. <laughs> Nothing more than feelings. <laughs> but... The thing about Can't Robin Williams, forget. though, was no, that... Gene the, and Lon Bridget. No, the thing about Robin Williams, I don't think anybody knew how much he was suffering, I think. No, you I know, apart so. from his close family, obviously, but nobody in the industry knew at all. Uh, as you say, he masked it so well. Yes. And um, yep. Thanks, Robert. Right. Um, but, yeah, I mean, those performances. And something like Mrs. Doubtfire, which is just a, oh. such a joyous performance, you know, and you think, how can this person... Or, or, uh, good morning Vietnam you know it's like my god it's just incredible incredible uh, love of life in those performances but behind that mask was this was this tortured soul you know and also in the birdcage one of his oh I love that performance mm. with, Nathan, with Nathan Lane should we see a little bit of Robin? Yes, in please. I think we should. Everyone loves to see yeah. Robin. Well, uh, this is one of my favourites of his it's, uh, Patch Adams oh, um, which that. is uh, uh, quite a sort of tragic comic thing um, and it's just, just Robin's ability to, to work with kids. And I just think this is, you know, this is, this is the clown, William. So please, Patch Adams. <laughs> Big kisses. Terminally ill children, cocaine, <laughs> which is why that clip is so sickening. W whilst we talk about Robin a moment, uh, can we get the color fix on the projection for the next couple? If that's okay. Yeah, well, yeah. The black and white will play in black and white if it's in color oh, yeah. or not. But we know. got some color it, stuff it as well. It won't magically put Tony Hancock into color. I promise you. But go on, carry yeah. It might. The BBC it can might. do amazing things. That'd be things very now. exciting, won't it? Yeah. We've seen all those Doctor Who's where they've restored the color exactly. from, from yeah, black yeah, and white. Yeah, absolutely. But that's that's a beautiful performance, and I think oh, the way gosh. a bit like uh, Charlie Chaplin could work with with children. Robin Williams's performance there is just extraordinary. Actually, yeah. very very moving. I don't think he could ever stop performing really, could he? No. You know, and there's never any... A bit like Sellers, you don't feel there's any one person that Robin Williams actually is. I think it's very hard to find out who... You know, I, I, I couldn't sit and say, this is his voice, this is him, this this is the person that... And it's, you know, his, his, his RBF, his resting bitch face is impossible to discover. <laughs> you know. Yeah. 
But like I say, the, the fact that, that that imagination was just never off, you know, and I think, as you say, he, he, he would make every... If he was here now, he'd be doing something with the water or making something out of that bottle or something. He just couldn't couldn't not help, you know, help being funny with things, you know, and I think it's, it's, it's almost a sort of a disease, isn't it? It's like almost, almost comedy Tourette's in a weird sort of way, isn't it? You just couldn't help it. I mean, so is this the, is this the, the you know, the, this constant need to perform because he needs to perform, or is it the sense that he feels that he has an audience that expect him to perform? I wonder at what point if, if one took over, or is, is that something that does happen as a performer? I think certainly Eric Morecambe said that he was always had to be funny. I think it was the Jasper Carrot line, wasn't it? That you don't go to a plumber and say, you know, fix my taps uh, in the street. But if you're a comedian, you say, tell me a joke. Mm. So, so you can't escape it, I think. And I, but I think in terms of Robin Williams, he just wanted to give pleasure to people. I think that was to, to, to colour his, his, his bleak inner turmoil. If he got a laugh every day, it made him feel happy, I think. Tony, what about you? I mean, is this? Uh, do you feel these sort of pressures? Oh, it's certainly nicer to uh, hear other people's laughter than to feel suicidal uh, in terms of choices. Yes, but do, do you do you see? I think psychiatrists are overpaid, really, because you know it's. When I, I saw a psychiatrist, I asked him this very question. Do, do you think this need for validation and applause and laughter? And I just ranted on in some free associative way. And he did an MSc, a mental state examination on me. And he was, he was president of the Royal College of Psychiatry. And uh, I was just talking, he was writing things down. And with a slight twinkle in his eye, he put the pad down at the end of, uh, it was three hours, I think, with a break, three hours. He said, ah, the thing is, uh, Mr. Slattery, um, you're mad. <laughs> so here's what we're going to do. <laughs> like, you know, CBBs or something. <laughs> what, should we, should we go through the round window? Here's a glove puppet of a nutty person. This is you. Now take the halo perinol and fuck off. He didn't say that. <laughs> but the, the principle was the same. So, so, sorry, to answer your question, too, that was a serious answer, yeah, yeah. by the way. Uh, yeah, I think, I, I, I think you... I think one, if one wants to be a comedian, or, or indeed a sort of straight actor, it's the same principle mm. uh, that there's, uh, there's an impetus to entertain. But as a straight actor, I mean, you can sit there and be deadly serious. You're not having, the, you don't feel the need in the same way to kind of put on a show and make people laugh. No. Which is a different but I, kind but of I pressure. Am a straight actor. Did you, you not see my prince <laughs> in Romeo and Juliet? I've just given it to you. I can give it to you again, but I'm not going to because I'm exhausted. It's like no. climbing Everest with two dead huskies trying to neck. These performances. <laughs> Don't come cheap to your soul. No. And I'll tell you for why. Derek Jacoby once said to me, ooh. <laughs> that was Frankie Howard, I think. Anyway, no, but, um, um, no, but I, I think the principle's the same whether you're, whether you're uh, uh, doing, doing Shakespeare or doing, you know, uh, Ray Cooney. Uh, the, the, the fear of coming out onto a stage uh, and, and beautiful audience we have here today, but mm. it, it's, a, it's a room 
full of strangers and you've got to go out there and, and either make them laugh or make them cry or make them think or make them do something yeah, I mean, don't overstate it it's not a room full no well these no are, I know come that's, on. That's, Look, that's a come phrase on. These, these, these are wonderful people who've come here alright Tony it's a telephone booth full <laughs> um, but it's, it's they, they still booth. count They've still got a feeling. Of course they do. They do seem better that you're, you're, you're here at all. And it's brilliant you're here because of you and you. And, and I've, you. Just, I've, just, I've just wandered on. Not at all. Um, um, also, also, going back to Robin Williams, you know, that was so... I know, see, that's the, that's the impulse of taking the mickey out of something which was as moving as that. Because yeah. otherwise you'd just be crippled by the pathos of it. And it's to go back to what we were saying earlier... And, um, but also, but, you know, he could do that so well. But then to go back to um, um, the birdcage, when Nathan Lane says, and I just remind you right now, when Nathan Lane says, look to Robin Williams, and they're both a gay couple. <laughs> Before I met you, I was beautiful. <laughs> look, look at what you've made me. You've made me. <laughs> now I'm fat, ugly, short, has been thing. And Robin, when he said, I made you short. <laughs> and But he does it without any camp at all. And it's one of the standouts. But that, that was a beautiful clip. Thank you. Well, I, th I think this is the thing about Robin Williams. And again, why it hit us so much was because it, he made us laugh so much. We, all we wanted to do was to find somebody that could sit there and make him feel the same kind of release. And, and hopefully just not make the decisions that ultimately well, isn't that he quite, made. He, he said, if I can make you know someone's life happy for one day then I've achieved what I was trying to do you know yeah. and and through all those performances and also the whole children's thing doing the wonderful performance uh, as the genie in, in Aladdin the, the animated version before Eddie Murphy uh, Eddie Murphy um, uh, Will Smith did the, uh, the, the the real life remake mm. um, uh but Robin's performance as the genie was was the only um, performance uh, of uh, uh, a voice artist in a cartoon that was nearly nominated for an Oscar. It was so good. Yeah, I mean, it's just incredible. I mean, they just let just wind him up and let him go. And um, some of the outtakes are just outrageous. But yeah, I mean, he's just he was just just unique. And I think all these people are unique. I mean, and I think they're unique because of their their own personal angst. Um, you know. I want to introduce you to a comedian now, if I may. Mm. So um, some of you guys, we're in Belfast, so some swing guys from the Paul Curry. Yes. So Paul Curry is, is uh, a local comedian, but he uh, has basically geared his whole shows around mental health issues. I mean, it's, it's very, very strong, and he's using his comedy as a very direct way of dealing with it. Tony has just been talking about glove puppets, so there's a Paul Curry clip on there. Can you play that? <coughs> do, 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 do. So uh, this genius overlooked the fact that our recording doesn't include pictures, and so you folks at home can't experience Paul's comedy firsthand. Do yourselves a favour and search for Paul Curry Comedian on YouTube. Uh, you get to see a little bit of taste of what he does, and you can also find him on Facebook and uh, find out about any upcoming events and things that he's doing both in the real world and online. 
<laughs> I'm sorry, I'm, I'm crying with laughter. I thought that, that was strangely beautiful, wasn't it? it? Was, yeah. I was just going to say it's actually more moving than the dying children, <laughs> which is a terrible thing to say. But, but it was really moving and just one of the funniest things I've seen. So what's Paul's background? I don't know his work. Um, Paul is, uh, he's been working on stuff over here for, for a very long time. He's, he's, he plays uh, Edinburgh quite regularly now. I only saw him this year for the first time. And, well, you uh, mentioned him. This, 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 yeah, this. I sent you a message. Oh, no, you did, the last though. There were so many shows to see. This show. but yeah, yeah, exactly. And I was also working with this man about five times a day. But this yeah. is true, this is true. Um, I think Rachel... I don't remember that. Did, did, uh, <laughs> we did some shows, didn't we, in Edinburgh this year, I think? You did, I definitely saw oh, you did, yeah, yes, yes. yes. About 50, Tony. No, we didn't. I, I saw two of them. Saw two, two of them, them. Okay. Um, Yeah, no, so Paul has had his own mental health issues over the years as well. He, he talks very openly about um, having uh, had his battles and about his own uh, male mental health, about the, the, the suicide um, elements and things as well. And his work is pretty unlike most things I've seen. I, mean, I think there's elements of Vic and Bob in there. There's elements of The Goon Show, which I think is partly why I love what he does. It's that slightly surrealist thing. But he also uses it almost as a manifest for a manifesto for, for kind of addressing mental health issues and getting people to start talking about it. He has a, a particular sketch called Panda Hands, which some of you, I'm sure, know very well. Poor Rachel's having a fit there <laughs> in the corner. Um, I mean, again, he used it, he's using these things as sort of metaphors and everything else, and it, it, it does push that barrier. It makes people have those conversations. It is yeah. uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned the goodies earlier, um, Tony. The way he manipulates that piece of felt and ping-pong ball is a bit like Graham Garden. He, he's <laughs> wonderful with, with a bit of felt. He can bring life to anything, <laughs> Graham, you know. And yeah. um, the, the, you feel for that monkey, don't you? I mean, you do. It's, it's, it's an emotional performance that Paul was giving that monkey life. It's absolutely amazing. I love it, love it. But yeah. it's also that taboo-busting element. It's, that, you know, to, to have those things that we sort of almost feel we're not allowed to talk about, that it's, it's not okay to laugh about someone killing themselves. Mm. But sometimes that's the only thing you can do is to yeah. sit and have a laugh about it. Yeah. Or, or, you know, to be sitting in that pit of despair. Um, I wonder if that's pushing the theory slightly. You don't think you should laugh about people killing themselves? Well, if you see someone kill themselves, I'm not sure. Would you Would you go as a defence mechanism? <laughs> Possibly, if they do it badly. No, we'll give it half an hour. <coughs> if they do it badly, sure they're not dead, are they? They, they, if they, do it they badly, miss. If you do it badly, then just go. Oh, for God's sake! You better do it. Do it right. You so you're making it funny now. Look, you're, you're <laughs> proving Robert's point here. Yes, but, um, yeah. <laughs> but it is. I mean, but it is one of those things. I that made a noose once. Intentionally for for yeah. a, for a suicide attempt. Yes. Mm. But I didn't. Uh, mm. Yes. But you didn't go through with it. Pardon? You you didn't attempt to follow through once you've done the noose. Tried, but tried <laughs> clearly not very well. <laughs> Mm. Mm. I want to save that for tomorrow night. Okay. Mm. 
I feel that might be. Sorry, I didn't mean to bring the mood down. No, 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 no. You started it. Why did you started it by saying, "Oh, if you see someone kill themselves, you laugh." Well, no, 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 no not necessarily that you do. I mean, I, I've lost a couple of friends in the last year to, to suicide, and it's something that's affected me very, very deeply. But well, there quite, is but the, part of me that, that 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 can sit there and watch something like that, yeah. and I can see that there is not. A, Whilst there's a, there's, there's a similarity in some respects to, to, to the act, and you can see that, that mental anguish and everything else, I can still sit there and feel deeply uncomfortable, but also find that deeply hilarious. Yeah. Yes. I've certainly been there too, and I didn't succeed either. Um, but, but there's a lot of stuff in, in Tony Hancock's work, for example, that mm. Galton and Simpson saw in Tony's public persona, R&D private persona, and they would drop in references to suicides mm. quite a lot. And we're going to come to Kenneth Williams, obviously one of one of Hancock's uh, cohorts. And uh, if you read his diaries, he's writing in 1944, at the age of 17, about suicide. Yeah. He's discussing it between him and his best friend, that was his diary. And um, so, so I think, I think it's, it, is, it is sort of part of what makes these comedians tick, I suppose. And like we mentioned before about Robin Williams, we didn't know, but obviously that informed his you know, angst-driven, you know, 125% comedy, I think. Um, but that was, yeah. Just the, the, the. So ne next year, mm. when we do Edinburgh, if we do Edinburgh again, okay. um, we'll go and see Paul. He's totally should. It's brilliant. Oh, yeah. fantastic. Um, I mean, just to add to that, I mean, I've, I've been that, that place myself. I've, I've been that close and also not successful. Um, Good. But it is... Unless this is a ghost, which <laughs> no, exactly. would, be, would be quite good. We're, we're all figments of your imagination, really. This is like you know, this is Ooh. not happening in this show at all. But uh, um, yeah. but but I, I think it it's probably healthy to be able to look that or to look at those situations and to be able to occasionally laugh, knowing that they have a context, you know. But also to be able to talk about it. Um, should we talk about Marty? Yeah, we, we haven't. I mean, I, I he's, a, he's a great technician, Marty. And um, no, sorry, you mean Feldman, don't you? Yeah, we'll, yeah, okay. we'll, we'll, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll have a look at Marty. Then we're going to open up to the floor for a little bit, and then we will close with Ken. All right. Um, what should can we stick the color on for this? Because this is definitely in color. Is that possible? Or are we now stuck in black and white, like like you know, black. like Raging Bull? <laughs> Okay, we'll try it. If it's in black and white, oh, who cares? It's all right. um, um, let's, let's, let's show a little clip of mine. This is, this is extremely rare, so please bear with it. This is from the vaults, um, and it's, it's, it's time-coded, and it was a, a, a German um, television documentary that Marty made in the early 1970s. Um, uh, but it's in English, thankfully. It's German subtitles. Um, and it's basically a, a look at, at, um, at uh, what Marty ticked and, and, and how he sort of um, distrusted psychiatry. So this is the first clip of that documentary, please, Marty. Uh, all I have is what's in there, yeah? That belongs to me. Um, the thing to do is to keep people out of it. Well, unless you invite them in, as I'm inviting you in, fine. But that's, as a guest, you can come into my head. Uh, but my head is private, it belongs to me. I must fight to keep control of what's in there and not let other people get inside it and march all over it, you know? Um, so that's the reason, really, um, that I write, I write poetry, but I write poetry um, for me. And what I do then is I take the top off my head and let the ideas and the images just fall out, but then it's only for me. Um, I protect the inside of that, and I won't allow anybody in unless I invite them. So I distrust psychiatrists. Um, I don't want anybody coming inside my head. You know, it's like my house. That's where they want to get the producers. That's where the machine wants to get inside your head. They want to take over the inside and turn it into what they want it to be. In the early days of Hollywood, um, 
they would have straightened that nose, then they would have given me another operation to straighten that eye, they'd have cut my hair short, they'd have trimmed a bit off my chin, and I would have looked like everybody else, instead of looking like this. Does that look like me? This head I try to keep separate from that one, you know? Yeah. There are two heads on my shoulders. Yeah. <laughs> that one works for me, that's the one that I put on for other people, you know? Not for friends, but for hustlers. The majority of the people in this business. Right. End of the head. Sit. Stay. Stay. No. I love that clip. I, I, I love that that insight at the start. You know, this is this is my head. This is for me. And unless I let you in, which yeah, it's an amazing documentary. Actually, it's very 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 rare. Never shown in this country. Um, but um, yeah, it, it gives you an insight into into what he was like. And, and Marty was first and foremost a, a, a vaudevillian when he started out, a, a variety turn, but then became famous or not famous, but but successful in the business as a writer first and foremost. But he always wanted to get back to performing, and 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 you know, he wasn't he wasn't born like that. That was that was just hard work and too many cigarettes and <laughs> too many bottles of vodka and uh, and late nights and um he just had this um it's called graves disease and it basically um slackens the muscles around the eyes and uh um he could have had an operation back in the the late 50s to fix it but it was at those times uh life-threatening to have this operation so his wife loretta said well you know just stay like it and of course it was his blessing and curse he became a a comedy icon because of that you know what he called the gothic mask of his face uh, but uh, yeah he would do chat shows and and try and talk about you know uh, humanitarian um ideals and and and, and religion and uh, anti-vietnam war and uh vegetarianism which he, he was very passionate about but the host and the and the audience would just laugh because of that it was marty Feldman, you know mm. clown he couldn't escape it Seems to be something that I mean that that's a thread that, that comes up in a lot of the interviews that, that you look at when you have a comic performer there is that there is often something else going on, they often have another agenda, but the interviewer and the audience just keeps on going back to, to that same place. There there's a clip, we're not gonna screen it tonight, um, of uh Spike Milligan and Michael Barrymore on stage, uh doing a, an interview for Barrymore's show. And Barrymore's almost trying to kinda out spike Spike in a way and it just feels miserably. You can't do that. <laughs> no, he just can't get the measure of him and Spike is obviously, you know, so many more steps ahead and also doesn't want to play the game. I mean he's playing the game but he doesn't want to clearly. Um and it is difficult. Did you ever work with Marty? Because you were just about starting out around he when he came back to England for a few projects in the no, early eighties. I, I, I never had that privilege or pleasure. I mean just um it was interesting uh, what you said, because I didn't know that, that he was offered these cosmetic procedures and he was bright enough to, <laughs> with his genius mind, to say, no, this is what I look like, this is where I am. So when uh, the whole Botox thing came in for actresses and it was really fashionable, and then uh, major directors would say to them, no, because you can't act. Could you look happy? Yes, <laughs> sad. I am fucking sad. And uh, and uh, then they then they had uh, restorative operations to give them wrinkles. Right. So yeah. it's the same principle as my. This yeah. is this yeah, is yeah. this is what I look like. Yeah. 
But he, he, he was obsessed about coming back into the business, and he did a show called At Last, a 1948 show, which was Marty and Timbert Taylor and John Cleese and Graham Chapman just before Monty Python, uh, where the Four Yorkshiremen sketch comes from. That's the original version that Marty co-wrote with those other three. Um, not a Python sketch, um, but borrowed by the Pythons later. Um, but Marty wanted to be a performer, and, and uh, it was uh, Timbert Taylor who said to David Frost, suggested Marty as the, as the fourth member of the, of the team. And David Frost, who was the executive producer of that show, said, you can't put him in front of the camera. Look at the state of him. He scared people away. But um, he became the biggest star of the four very quickly. He got headhunted by the BBC and got his own show, the first... The first um, Colour sketch show on BBC television, mm. Marty, or It's Marty. And then was spotted by Gene Wilder for a little film called Young Frankenstein, which means a lot. That film there. Um, <laughs> hump, what hump, and all that. <laughs> um, and then became, became very popular in America. And his, 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 his comedy hero was Buster Keaton. Um, so he wanted to pay Hollywood back for Buster Keaton. Mm. And when um, Universal Pictures offered him what he called the triple threat to, to star direct and write his own films. He was just so excited, and it, that quickly turned sour, alas. He did a film called The Last Remake of Beau Geste um, in 1977, and Marty's quote was, 1977 is a great year to release your film as long as it's called Star Wars, <laughs> uh, because nothing else did well apart from Star Wars that year. Um, so that was that, and they did one more film as director, star, and, and writer called In God We Trust, uh, which was T-R-U- Dollar sign T, bless you, sir. T, that's all right. T R U dollar sign T in God We Trust, uh, which was a, an attack on uh, American evangelistic um, religion. And for a good Jewish boy from Canning Town <laughs> to take on America was not a great idea. And that was shown for, I think, three days before Universal pulled it. And uh, he was uh, sacked from his contract. And I've got a lovely photograph of Marty leaving his his trailer on the back lot at Universal, giving the middle finger to the head office. And he's got three little badges on his lapel, one of Buster Keaton, one of, Harold, uh, one of Harper Marx, and one of um, Stan Laurel, his, his, three, his three comedy heroes. He lies just a few feet away from Buster Keaton. From Buster, indeed he does, yeah. In, uh, so, uh, he, that was his, he was obsessed. He would, he would run a Buster Keaton film every day, wherever he was, he, just to, to remind himself that this... You know, shit kicker is in the same business as that genius. Mm. He would say that I look upon Keaton like the average organist looks upon Bach. You know, I, I'm 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 okay. He's just sublime. Um, but yeah, he just just you know just saw beauty in comedy. And and Marty is one of those people I just just think is just you know one of those unsung geniuses really. There's a very good biography of him. Is there? There is. Tell me about Vri that, Robert. Written, written by someone called Robert Roth, I believe. Um, that was an upset. I, I took 20 years to get that published. I, I, just, uh, I just was so passionate, to, and nobody wanted to publish it, because particularly in, 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 um, in Britain, uh, Marty was a forgotten man. He still is, to an extent. Uh, and in America, you're only popular for three weeks after your last success. So in America, he's sort of forgotten as well. But I wrote that book, and I'm very proud of it. And also, I wrote a play you based did. on it, too, called Jeepers Creepers. Where'd you get those peepers? You see, that was the title was the best thing about it, quite frankly. <laughs> oh, you were too harsh. I did, I did see that one as well. Yes. Um, speaking about, I, I realised that there's somebody we we haven't touched on properly. Um, and again, talking about the facial figures, I'm thinking with Stephen Fry and his big crooked nose. Uh, I was watching the the manic depressive, his, his his documentary, the, the Secret Diary of the Manic Depressive, 
the Secret Life of the Manic Depressive yeah. uh, the other night. Uh, and kind of struck by that. And, and, there's, and there's someone in that, I think, not, not a million miles from us, Mr. Slattery. Yes. There's, there's someone who no one recognises, and there are loads of uh, uh, famous people in it. But it was an important piece, and uh, the science has moved on since then. And, uh, yeah, I'm doing a programme as well. Oh, I, I mean a programme about uh, bipolarity. Um... And uh, it would be interesting to see some of the results from the experts. Yeah. Because it, 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 I think, well, I, I think the film. Was it how many years ago? We're talking about this over lunch. It's 13, is it 13 is years 13 ago? 13 years years ago. So where's those years gone? It's ridiculous. 2006. Yeah. Uh, the time goes by so fast, you look around tomorrow's past. Hmm. That's a Janessian lyric, I think. And uh, so, yeah. So I was very privileged to be uh, part of that. And it's hugely important in kind of breaking open that taboo even further. It was indeed, yeah. yes, yes. And it wasn't, not the scene was doing it for that, he he's not the sort of person, but he won an Emmy. Uh, he won a couple of awards, I think, and um, loads of, uh, I mean, big names were in it. Me, I was just in it. You're a big name, very identifiable. For what? <laughs> Comic genius. I think this was I don't the, think so. when we had this. We had a, we had a lunch uh, Christmas around Christmas 2017 when we hatched the idea for this touring yes, chat that's show. Right. And Tony, we're, we're out to entertain and make people laugh. This is not, you know, particularly funny. It was funny for the clips, but but the show we do or do uh, still is 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 funny hopefully with anecdotes and whatever but the fundamental point of it was that you wanted to, to go out and just discuss mental health in general and, and your experiences in particular wasn't it? sure absolutely and uh, no um <clears throat> subject off limits and uh particularly if you if got into say the darker areas that would be acceptable and then uh, who knows, the prince might arrive again, um, and, and uh, as, as he sometimes does, out of the blue. Uh, but then uh, that's sometimes uh, a reaction, as you said, uh, Robert, to laughing about the dark stuff. Uh, but the dark stuff has to be not... Mm, that's the wrong way to put it. It's good to ventilate it. Otherwise, if you interiorise it too much, it does become corrosive mm. and if you can talk about it however self-indulgent or queasy it seems it, it 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 might be of use not only to oneself but to other people because if they say oh he's that bloke off the telly if he can talk about it then perhaps i can as well to to other people and i'm not doing this for <clears throat> career advancement I, I was thinking about this because if anything it will it will make me seem as oh he's rent a nut mm. and um it won't bring me any work because they'll think oh no he's uh, he's unstable but I'd rather be uh, honest than not. Well, that's, that's sort of what I said earlier on about, you know, once you start coming up with this stuff, 
people do sort of forget that you, you, you yeah. exist or they don't want to touch you. Well, but I was going to say, because the last 18 or so months that I've been doing these shows with Tony, I mean, the, and you saw one of the early shows, didn't yeah. you? Um, the, the marked improvement of you on stage and your, and your ability to actually address not just the mental health issues, but, but to, to instant recall of particular anecdotes and whatever. It's just incredible. And I think, you know, and there were some points, and I've said this to you before uh, in, in private, that sometimes I thought, you know, you almost shouldn't be doing it, but it is a sort of therapy, I think. I, th I think so. And uh, that's, why, that's why it's called, I guess, talking therapy. Well, and yeah. if you're lucky enough to have uh, friends or a significant other, which I have, uh, and some people don't. Some people are very, sadly, um, isolated, and they don't have people to talk to. And that's why talking is important, because there, there is help out there. Mm -hmm. There is. And it, it can be just a phone call away if you're wealthy enough to, to have a phone. <laughs> But looking at but looking at Marty as well. I mean, he, as I say, the chat shows he did. He wasn't allowed to be so candid because yeah. they they laughed at even the most serious points. So he would use his comedy. There's a lovely sketch he does with Spike Milligan actually, um, who was a huge hero of Marty's too. Um, when they did a show called Marty Feldman's Comedy Machine, when they're both playing sort of rival undertakers. You know, I, I love that, that, yeah, love that yeah. sketch. Well, I mean, so it's so it's, it's it's the most morbid subject, but it's hilarious. It's it's like a sort of a slapstick comedy of of, of sort of death, I suppose. Um, and he ended his days at the age of 48, Marty, massive heart attack when he was shooting a film called Yellowbeard. Um, as just an actor, he, he wasn't directing, but he was sort of ghost directing it, and he wasn't writing it, but sort of ghost, ghost writing it. But surrounded by pals, Graham Chapman and Peter Cook and uh, Eric Idle and John Cleese and all these, all these friends from, from, from 20 years ago, you know. So, so uh, yeah, and... Um, it, it, that was that was his end, you know. He just he wanted to come back to England, really, but his wife was very controlling and wanted him to stay in America. Um, ended up doing sort of commercials and things. But he does a he does a really beautiful episode of the Muppet Show, which he does. Um, yeah, which is uh, again, well, I get so weepy. It's ridiculous. They're funny people, but I get very emotionally attached to these these uh, these comedians. And there's a, a beautiful episode of the Muppet Show, which he did just before he died. Actually, one of the most beautiful performances of his career. And, he's, and he went on record saying, I feel very much at home in a world of felt and, uh, you know, sort of crazy-eyed uh, monsters. And, and they actually went to the effort of doing a special Marty Feldman Muppet for this one show. And right at the end, when the credits are rolling and, and he's come out on stage with all the, all the Muppets and a load of the cast of Sesame Street come out as well. It's beautiful sort of reunion of all Jim Henson's great creations. And Marty's wearing a baseball cap and he embraces the the Marty Muppet and puts the baseball cap on the Muppet. And it's just a bit like Paul doing, he, he mm. makes that, that piece of inanimate object come alive. It's, it's an amazing performance. Um, before I open it up to, to the audience here, I just wanted to kind of say, in terms of, you've said a couple of times now, Tony, that you, sometimes this stuff is seen as self-indulgent to talk about you know, our, you know, our mental health issues. Mm. But I don't think it's self-indulgent at all. I think it's a really important part of the process. And this, this thing that we have as a, as a sort of society that we should not talk about it, that we should be quiet because to, to talk about it may seem narcissistic or self-indulgent, but that's actually the only way that we're ever going to break the taboos. It's the only way that we're ever going to be able to move beyond a point where people are too scared and you end up sitting like Kenneth Williams in a flat, not able to go on. You've got it in one. 
I want to open this up because, and, and hopefully you'll raise the level up slightly to happier places. Uh, Jeff, I'm looking at you. <laughs> um, anyone want to ask anything or contribute? Hold on, I, I've got a microphone as well, so uh, let me bring microphone to you because we're all getting hardier. And I can't get out of this seat now. I'm stuck here forever. Look, I think. Look at I. I'll never get out. Bring of me this a bottle seat. of Pinot Gris. I'll be fine. After the show, Rob. After the show. I'll be good, Daddy. I promise. I'm normally not very good with microphones, but I just want to say a few things uh, that you brought up. Uh, really impressed get the, by, by what's what went, went down here tonight. Uh, very grateful to you. You, know, um, you guys, your comedy's great. Uh, you're two heroes of mine, and your humanity there was, was on show there tonight, and that was a really nice thing. Um, listen, um, you were talking about Robin Williams, you know, and... Uh, I heard you on the radio and you were talking about it. I had to come here tonight, which is a big step for me. Massive, massive big step for me. I met Robin Williams in New York. And uh, it was a chance meeting in New York. I was over with a, with a girlfriend. And uh, he walked, just walked past. And it was, happened after 9-11, but he was on Broadway doing the stand-up comedy. And... Uh, a huge hero of mine, one of the reasons why I tried to go into teaching and stuff, Deaf Poets Society and stuff. He was just walking past, and uh, real hot day, he was walking down in shorts and a hat, and I just sort of said, oh, there's Robin Williams. Jesus, there's Robin Williams. And he heard me, he heard the Irish accent, you know, and he came back into the cafe. And he w walked off, and I'd love to know where he was before. I have a feeling that he, he was up early and maybe at a, at a meeting or whatever. And uh, he came in and he sat down with us. And uh, it was a really lovely thing, you know. Uh, really lovely, warm person, fantastic guy. And uh, had a personal connection to him, you know. Um, it was a big thing for me, you know. Um, one of the nicest people. I only spent a very short period of time with him, you know. Uh, so it was a, that was a great experience, and his, his comedy, uh, you know, uh, when he was being serious, it was it was lovely to see both sides, you know. But I think that that warm humanity comes through, doesn't it, in those performances? And I think to not be let down by a hero like that is is a, a, that stays with you. That was one moment for him, but for you, that's going to be with you forever, isn't it? You yeah, know, that, yeah. that that brief connection with someone that you admire so much. Yeah, completely. It's funny how people, uh, obviously he had his huge issues with, with addiction and stuff like this, and I ran into him and I was thinking, well, look, when's the next, when's the next, you know, wanting to make a connection with him, am I going to the next party that he's going to, you know, or whatever. And uh, so he said to the girl I was with, what's the connection here and stuff like this. I was going through it and I wanted to, I was just sort of downplaying it, oh. and, uh, you know, I'd I see through bullshit very quickly, you know. Uh, it, was some, it was a nice moment, and he went off, and it, 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 his humour. But you said there, you know, about within the industry that it wasn't known and stuff. Mm. Um, I, I did see an interview with him where he talked talked about one of the summers that he had on cocaine and drink and stuff. And um, I wonder is that you wonder to what extent that's true in terms of warning signs and whatever else. I, I don't know. I don't know. I think I think everybody sort of knows when they're going through some sort of problem, and I think a lot of them, as I say, Robin Williams particularly, would channel it into his comedy, I guess, wouldn't he? Um, 
Have you done that, Tony? Have you, have you sort of taken some sort of bleak thought and turned it into something funny? Oh, uh, yes. Um, uh, <clears throat> except uh, the bleakness can sometimes not travel well um, to the audience's mind, and it just comes across as bleak. So when, when, when you try and um, acrobaticize, that's a neologism, and I'm proud of it. I've just made that up. When you acrobaticize the bleakest of thoughts, and you think, now that's funny, and then when it's greeted with rather like now a tsunami of baffled silence, then it's worth questioning whether the trick of turning bleakness into humour works. It doesn't always, mm. which mm. is a bleak thought in itself. <laughs> Jeff, got a laugh though, didn't you? Oh, that's not bad. Oh, thank you. I, um, I could talk and ask you questions all night, so I'll be very careful not to. My wife knows I love all... This is all my stuff, so I, I don't want to hog things. I was just trying to think, trying to think of the best or something to ask or something. But I just thought it was a. Uh, I love Terry Thomas. I love all kinds of, you know, old old time uh, comedians. But Terry Thomas said something that he he admitted in his autobiography that he got depression and when he was down he couldn't imagine that anyone could even could ever think he was funny. And he had a theory. He said that maybe um, involving yourself closely with comedy a lot is liable to give you the blues at some point because it's such a heady thing. Um, and that's why a lot of comedians he knew as well, Tony Hancock, uh, tended to have that downside. I, I thought it was an interesting thing, almost like that's the payoff, you know, from, from it's a wonderful, joyous thing, but with that, you know, um, it's not really a question, <laughs> it's just a... No, but it's it an observation, one. isn't it? I mean, I, I, met, I met Frankie Howard a couple of times. I was, I was one of his Frankie Pankies. Um, oh, I know, yes, we, yeah, we, we won't go into that. Please, don't you start. We'll all be doing it later. It's like, it's like you know, a disease. Um, but, but when I was in my, my late teens, early 20s, there was a whole generation of, of, of university students that sort of rediscovered Frankie Howard. Um, and um, uh, I, I was... It's a very long story, so I'll repeat it in the bar later. Um, but but, the, but the, the fundamental thing was, like I said earlier, he would turn the questions onto the interviewer, and he would try and avoid answering questions. And he said, you know, he asked me, Robert, why do you think I'm funny? And my answer was, because you're Frankie Howard. And he said, well, that's not an answer. But I, I, thinking about it, I thought about that moment a lot, and I thought, actually, that's a pretty good answer, because you're Frankie Howard, and because you're Terry Thomas, because you're Tony Slattery. You know, because, because what we see is, is that funny image. To Frankie Howard, that was the same face he'd been shaving for 60 years, 70, you know, whatever. It, it was the person he'd, he'd always been. He wasn't funny in himself, but, but the audience just loved him. He walked on stage in the warmth. A bit like doing shows with Tony uh, around the country, but Edinburgh this year particularly, where we had full houses for our, for our chat show, and I would come out and do the introduction, and, and Tony would come on, and the wave of love was... No, he won't, he won't admit this, but I'm going to say it. Yeah, but it was, that was also mixed with... I, I know there was people who remembered me, thinking, oh, I thought he was dead. And, and oh, he can walk unaided onto the stage, bless him. So there was, there was, there was that involved as well. A little and tiny also, bit of that. Yeah, and also, I said, um, do you remember whose line is it anyway? And people would come up to me afterwards and say, 
My dad used to let me stay up real late to see you when I was three. Thank you. Here are my grandchildren. Thank you. Now you should go. You should really go. No, but no. So I'm, I'm taking them. Make but it, but it's true. I, th I think the comedian, you know, affects the mere mortals amongst us. But but they are mere mortals too. I think sometimes we forget that. You know. Hi there. A question for Tony. Um, when you were kind of almost omnipresent on television, were you aware of the kind of myth that uh, there was almost a backlash against you? And how did that make you feel as a person? Oh, um, <clears throat> well, the, the, the backlash, I think it's, it's the old thing that uh, the Americans kind of celebrate people, uh, but the English celebrate them, but they enjoy they enjoy the fall, and uh, when uh, the uh, subrogate, if that's the word, will I do? Subrogate? Uh, ubiquitous was attached to me, and it was. I was doing non-stop work, and it was exhausting, and I was doing it because I wasn't born into money, and, and I did some good things with it, and some foolish things, and selfish things, and self-indulgent things. Try and, uh, I tried to wear, but yes, there was a backlash in terms of... And, and I think lots of people, if, you, if you're on telly a lot, if, if you're on the crest of that wave and, and people are quite enjoying seeing you, it's great. But then there will come a point where they say, oh, not fucking him again. Jesus. And, um, I mean, Fred, that's, that's the way it goes. So it's, it's, so there was it's, the, uh, the Private Eye cartoon, wasn't there? There was a Private Eye cartoon, which I'm very proud of. Being, I was in a Viz cartoon as well, a Viz strip, which was Tony Slattery's phony cattery. And it was the strangest sort of just, just cartoon strip. And it was, uh, it was about me, I just did it because it rhymed, owning a cattery, which was phony. And I cheated old women uh, by taking in their cats and... <laughs> putting them in there, and it was full of really, actually quite unusual words, like, this is a simulacra, readers. This is a positive, imaginative fiction. I take their cats, but my cattery doesn't exist. It's my Tony Slattery's phony cattery. So I really loved that, but the private eye one was just my answer phones, and it said, hello, I'll do it. <laughs> And that was, that was the message. I must and Google that later. One final question. Um, sure. Is there a Falstaff or a Lear in you? Oh, my God. <laughs> that could be answered so many ways. <laughs> <laughs> Behave yourself. I'll try. Um, oh, God. Every, every, oh, that's so... Wouldn't it be great? Let's see if I can remember the words. That's, that will be the first hurdle, I think. Uh, I certainly got the girth to do... To do full stuff, so don't need any padding for that. Lear would uh, surely. I'm surely I'm too young to do Lear. <laughs> yes, I think so too. So you see, if there was a commercial and that was a camera there, you see, it would be high. So for, oh, I have asked this before. Haven't I? Is there any way from a, anyone from a pharmaceutical company in here or cosmetics? Because what I want to do, I want an ad. I'm broke. I'd like some money. All I want to do. It's really simple. I could do it in one take. So if you're camera one, you go, hi. Say, um, 
Mm. Pantene. Hi. I'm Tony Slattery, and I'm 59. Camera? That's right, 59. That's it. That's it, I can do it. Lear would be more difficult. Oh, I don't know. And I should say 60 on Saturday, Tony. Yeah, shut up. Yes, I'm sorry, but it's in my contract. Uh, yeah, well, absolutely, that's a worth a whoop. I'm, uh, I'm currently writing a, a, a solo show, which I, if Tony can learn the lines, I want Tony to do it, actually, but you know about this. This is news to me, of course. Oh, so. yeah, well, it's, it's, it's playing a person you mentioned earlier, one of our comedy heroes, and you've got the girl for it, as you say. Um, I'm doing a play about Benny Hill oh. currently. Oh, wow. Which I, which I desperately want Tony to, oh, to read to. and, and, and do at some point. Too. Anyone else, just, just while we're here? Any other questions, comments? Because I know we're starting to push towards our time. Is anyone else? No, I'll go back to this nicely bearded gentleman. I just wondered, uh, say, Sellers, um, there was that movie, The Life and Death of. Do you think that was a just, or do you think it was based on that book, which I thought was a very intense... The Roger Lewis book, yeah. yeah. And... and not what we don't need to get into all of it, but I just I felt like it was maybe uh, if it was based on that book, it was certainly uh, quite a dark portrayal, and maybe maybe not a, a whole. I don't know. I just wanted to see what your opinion was of it. Really. Have you seen that film, The Life and Death of Peter Sellers? Jeffrey Rush mm. plays Peter. The great conceit of it is that he also plays characters within his life. So he plays his mum sometimes, and he plays Blake Edwards looking at himself and. Uh, it's it's an incredible film. I mean, it is it is pretty bleak. But I, I mean, you know, having read a lot of biographies of Sellers over the years, I mean, he was he was he went through some pretty horrendous things. And I think the heart attack. He was doing a, a film for Billy Wilder called um, uh, Kiss Me. Was it Kiss Me Quick? I think, uh, and uh, with Dean Martin and um, Kim Novak. And he had a heart attack at the age of thirty nine, um, and he should have died. I mean, he 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 was apparently had five heart attacks on the bounce and should have been dead. And after that, he came out having think, thought he saw something, some, some other, other world, some other entity, some other sort of, you know, sort of purgatory or something. Uh, and it changed him completely. Um, so, yeah, I, th I think, but that, again, that, 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 that mental sort of breakdown informs his work so much. I think he, even, the, even the most terrible films, and I think we've, we've seen... Mm. Some of the worst ones that he did, stuff like The Great McGonagall when he plays Queen Victoria. And, um, I like that. <laughs> I love that film too, with Spike as, as McGonagall. Um, but even in those sort of really... There's a, there's a film called Where Does It Hurt, which he did in America in the early 70s, which is pretty awful. But even the performance of Sellers is just, it's just breathtaking because it's so... It's real, it's truth. And I think that was because he'd gone through that, that bizarre experience. Before that heart attack, he was fantastic. His British films, you know, the I'm All Right Jack and Naked Truth and all those sort of films are great. But there's, some, there's an added sort of depth and, and angst to those performances after that, mm. after that 64 heart attack. Yeah. What I like about Roger Lewis's book, though, is it does kind of repaint this picture and it's not afraid to go into the darker areas, which, you know... It, it, I suppose we put all our comedy heroes up on these pedestals and we sort of... And, and you would know this better than most of us because you've written about most of them. Uh, I think there's this books on... I'm not done sellers yet. I'm not done sellers yet. No, no. Or, or Spike, have you? No, not done Spike, yeah. Well, or, well or so, I've, I've written about them but not in book no, form no. yet. Well, I'll get, well, come on, I'm only 49. I'll get to it. Fuck's sake. Um, <laughs> but you would know better than others. I mean, th th there is this... Uh, well, I've lost my train of thought now. 
It was a good one too. About about sellers and uh, oh and sellers, uh, yeah. I think we put our we put our comedy heroes up on these kind of pedestals, and and I suppose like any of our our heroes, we put them up on a pedestal. That's why they're heroes. Um, but we forget that there's real people behind that, and and you know sometimes there's real people have real battles and real struggles, and are sometimes unpleasant people. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we should sort of head towards a finish, and we okay. we did say we'd talk about Ken before uh, we uh, left. Uh, when I when I agreed to do this, and I looked at the program, and, and it said we ended at ten o'clock, I thought we're never going to do ten o'clock. It's nearly ten o'clock, folks. Look at that. Yeah, apologies. Gosh, we do talk a lot, don't we? Well, I do anyway. Um, so let, let's, let's quickly look at Ken before before we kind of uh, finish up. Kenneth Williams. Kenneth Williams. Okay. Um, uh, let's talk about a bit of Kenneth first, shall we? I mean, uh, I, I did meet him as well once. Um, and uh, he, he was one of those people. He was lovely. I, I got on with him really well. I mean, I was very young um, and um, met him when I was about uh, 17. Um, but there are tales of him literally refusing to sign autographs for children and, um, you know, being in Italian restaurants. And if, if he was having a quiet conversation and wasn't bothered by autograph hunters, he would up his voice hmm. to make it very clear that he was in the building. And then when they came over, he would tell them to fuck off then. You know? <laughs> so he would almost do it as, as, a, as a sort of, as a, as a game with people. And there was a story that um, uh, Richard O'Callaghan told me, who did a couple of carry-ons, um, uh, with Sid James and Bernard Breslau, and Bernard Breslau would happily sign on location in Windsor or Maidenhead, wherever they were shooting the new carry-on. Uh, and Kenneth Williams turned around and was really quite rude to this person. And Bernard Breslau said to him, you know, without those people, we wouldn't be here. You know, that's part of the job mm. to sign the autographs. But, um, but I think he was just a very sad, lonely man. You, you met him, didn't you, Mr. I Williams? Did. I did, actually, in 19... 19- 1982, because um, <clears throat> I was president of this club called uh, Footlights, uh, which is a review club in uh, Cambridge, and it was a centenary year, and we were both on a radio show, and I did a sketch uh, on the radio. Kenneth Baker um, was presenting it, if you remember him, and uh, yeah, Kenneth Williams came up to him, and he did actually do that. I'm not, I'm not an impersonator, but he did actually say, mm, I thought that sketch was quite good, but mm, you're not rough enough for me. <laughs> and then just wandered off. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that was my, that's my Kenneth Williams anecdote. I suppose the thing about Kenneth is that we've had access to a bit more of him thanks to the, the letters and the diaries that he's left behind. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and when you read, so I mean, back in the 80s, they published a version of, of part of his diaries. Mm. And then you see sort of the, the less ex- expurgated versions. Russell Davis did the sort of the, the, the abridged... I've, I've actually read some of the, the unpublished stuff as well, which can get really quite bleak. As I mentioned earlier, he was writing about suicide when he was about 16, 17 years old. Um, and when I met him, um, I met him in the Charles Dickens coffee shop um, just off the Strand in London. And, um, and we were walking, and we were walking towards... Um, 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 Charing Cross tube station, and he he took my hand, you know, in a busy busy strand in London. Took my hand and just walked. It felt like five minutes, but it was probably like five seconds. And I I just went with it. And then he just let go and said, "Well done," and and that was it. It was almost like testing me. If I sort of recoiled in homophobic horror, it would be you know that was it. But um, but I mean I think it, it was it was his whole life was a game really. And I think he just. He was a good actor, and, and I'm not saying the carry-ons aren't, aren't good performances, but they are heightened performances. But he did Shakespeare and, 
and Brecht and, and Joe Orton and all that, you know, but, mm. but was known for these silly voices. And I think he felt a bit trapped in that. So he felt his career was a bit of a waste. But, you know, if he stuck to being a, a fairly average Shakespearean actor, he'd be nowhere near as beloved and remembered as for the carry-ons and for Hancock and for Round the Horn. You, you mentioned homophobia there, which is something I kind of wanted to touch on. We, we haven't had a chance this evening. Um, about the way that, particularly some of these actors, their sexuality does have a part to play in, in where the mental health has, has laid. There's a lot of... Uh, uh, we're talking about people like Frankie Hard and, and uh, Ken and... Um, well, it was illegal, of course, wasn't it? Well, it was um, for a long so, time. So we're talking, you know, if that's why Round the Horn was so bold. Uh, Marty oh, Feldman wrote it, thank you. Got the reference. The bar, uh, Marty yeah, yeah. Feldman and Barry Took wrote it. But but when Kenneth Williams and, and uh, Hugh Paddock were playing Julian and Sandy, with all that sort of boner talk, you know, um, mm. boner pets and stuff, and uh, all that sort of like, oh, put a, put, a, put a creeper up your trellis, Mr. Orn, and all that sort of stuff. I mean, that was going out on Sunday lunchtime on BBC Radio when it was... When it was a criminal offence to be homosexual, mm. you know. It, it was, it was, but they were blatantly, you know, these these aging um, chorus boys. Um, but I, I think that that was that was a service to the nation in a weird sort of way. I think I think that almost demystified homosexuality for people who were sort of thinking this is almost you know ungodly behaviour. Uh, I, I mean, I kind of do wonder because we were talking about men's mental health as well about that that sort of. If the homosexuality in some way is, is sort of lined up with ideas of, of what masculinity should be uh, and sort of uh, if the perception was or is continues to be that, that this is a, a difficult area. I don't know. Donnie, do you have any thoughts on this? I mean, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, we'll talk about this tomorrow night, but I mean, as... as that would be better. I mean, I, but, should, should we... Should we all go to the pub? Please, for God's okay, sake. That's the best one, thing you said Jesus all night. Um, <laughs> okay, for that one, we'll come back tomorrow night. Um, I think we're going to end this on a clip again. Yeah, yeah. this, this, is, this is, starts with a bit of, uh, of uh, Hancock. This is a thing that Kenneth Williams did in 1983, um, part of a series called Comic Roots, and this is Kenneth Williams' Comic Roots. And I think it addresses, you know, Kenneth's, um, um, his his sort of uh, what he grabbed onto was was religion, I think, to try and make sense of it. But this is and and on a on a laugh and 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 the legend that is Kenneth Williams. So Kenneth. it was in this theatre, the Lady Hammersmith, that I did my first review, which later transferred to the West End. And then years later, I came back to direct my first play, which also transferred. And that means that this auditorium has a lot of affectionate memories for me. And the wheel turned full cycle when the schoolmaster who'd directed The Rose and the Ring all those years ago came backstage to visit me here and we talked about what decides you on a career. I said then that I thought talent was something you were born with, but that style and the form would change with all the influences that came into your life, all the people you've ever liked. And the way that Shelley puts it, we are a portion of everything we've ever loved. And I think it is those loves that form the tissue, if you like, of belief and faith. Because acting is all about faith. Performing is making an act of faith, believing that you can create reciprocity between the auditorium and the stage. And that's why when the atheist says, what if life's pointless, what if it's all a joke, has to be answered by the comedian. Well, if it is a joke, let's make it a good one. Good evening. <laughs> 
Who are all these people that doth trespass on my domain? The hedgehogs call me Jungle Jim. No, don't be rotten. Ooh, that's a good idea. Get your clothes off. It's all the same. Animals haven't got anything we haven't got. No, stop messing about. I know what side my bread's buttered, ducky. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for coming along tonight. Just all that's left is for me to give a big thank you to Robert Ross and Tony Slattery. Thank you very much for being here. And thank you, Robert Simpson. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. A Comedy of Madness was devised by Robert J.E. Simpson and Robert Ross and featured Simpson, Ross and Tony Slattery. The show was recorded in front of a live audience on the 6th of November 2019 at the Crescent Arts Centre Belfast. The audio was mixed by Ben Simpson and published in May 2020. If you have been affected by any of the issues featured in the programme, please reach out. The CinePunk website includes details for support organisations in Northern Ireland and the UK. Other organisations are available. The show included a number of clips to help stimulate the conversation and frame the analysis within fair use guidelines. These are... The Case of the Muckanese Battlehorn, directed by Joseph Sterling, released in 1956 by Archway Film Distributors. The Dustbin Dance from a show called Fred, episode 5, directed by Richard Lester, broadcast on ITV in May 1956. Peter Sellers interviewed on the Today Show, broadcast by NBC in 1980, and that's available in full uh, on the Criterion Blu-ray of Being There. Tony Hancock in Hancock the Bed Sitter, directed by Duncan Wood, broadcast 26th of May 1961 by the BBC. Tony Hancock in Face to Face, interviewed by John Freeman, first broadcast by BBC on the 7th of February 1960. Robin Williams and Patch Adams, directed by Tom Shadiak, released in 1998 by Universal Pictures. Paul Curry in Live at the Electric, broadcast by BBC Three on the 4th of July 2013. Marty Feldman in Augenblick Mal, Vera ist Marty Feldman, broadcast by NDR on the 3rd of November 1974. And finally, Kenneth Williams in Comic Roots, broadcast by the BBC on the 2nd of September 1983. For more information on the CinePunk podcast and our regular programming, check out our website at cinepunk.com. You can leave us a review via iTunes or messages via Facebook and Twitter where we are CinePunk or on Instagram where we are CinePunk Film. Robert Ross can be found at robertross.co.uk and Tony Slattery is at tony-slattery.com. Until the next time, thank you.